The electric chair no longer supports nor participates in the Horror Palace Network. The electric chair, beware the lake. Hello and welcome to The Electric Chair. Thank you for tuning in once again this week. My name is Midnight Corey. And this is a show that I talk about all kinds of really cool horror things. I talk to all kinds of people involved in horror. And it's quite a diverse range. This week, man, this is going to be the longest episode yet. The most people that you've heard on a single show yet. And I'm not saying I'm going to be able to do this every week. But it just so happened that I got to do it this week. I get to talk to a bunch of people. You're going to be hearing a bunch of different voices and opinions and backgrounds. And it's just fantastic. I, I'm so excited. This is so much fun to do. Thank you again for uh, taking this ride with me. Oh, First off, let's go through who you're going to be hearing from. Author Dino Sands. Dino just put out a book called Blood Plantation. It's a supernatural historical book, and uh, I get to talk with him all about it and his writing. And uh, we review the movie Bag of Bones, which is a Stephen King adaptation, of course, of his novel. Uh, it was made for TV. It was actually aired in two parts on AMC. So I had a great time talking with Dino. Can't wait for you to hear that. Also, and this is in no particular order, I haven't decided how I'm going to play these on the show yet, but uh, as far as authors go, uh, I talked to Gravedigger, Cena Palayo from Burial Day Books. Now, Cena just released a book. Uh, it's an anthology called The Gothic Blue Book. I picked it up on Kindle. It's fantastic. It, it is really, really great. They're, they're actually working on a second one. And uh, so I get to talk to her all about that, all about Burial Day books, and uh, we review the movie Carnival of Souls from 1962. This is a classic. It's a movie I've wanted to talk about for a long time, and we really get into it, so I'm excited about that. Next up, you know, last week we heard from Maria Olson uh, about uh, Way Down in Chinatown, one of her latest projects, and I'm really excited about that. It looks really, really cool. I got to talk with the writer and director of that film, Eric Kochmer. He's a fantastic guy, and I got to sit down with him for a few minutes and uh, get a little more insight where he's coming from on this and uh, had a lot of fun. So Eric is going to be joining us. Also, uh, fellow podcasters, we have a couple podcasters that you'll be hearing from. First off, from the Horror Palace Network, my friend Tara Tovey. Uh, Tara, great guy, as you know. And uh, we review The Innkeepers, uh, which is a fairly new film directed by Ty West. Uh, it's a 2011 thing, just came out in DVD and Blu-ray and everything not long ago. And uh, I saw this movie and I wanted to review it with Tara Tovey, and he was so kind as to take time and to talk with me all about that movie. So, you'll be hearing that. And last but certainly not least, another podcaster joins me, Brian Wolford, uh, one of the crew over there at Drunken Zombie. I know a lot of you have heard of Drunken Zombie before. They're the hugely popular horror podcast. Uh, I've been around for a lot of years, and uh, Brian's a friend of mine, and he is a very, very talented writer, director, slash, slash, slash. I mean, he's, he's a man of extraordinary multiple talents um, and an all-around nice guy, too. Oh, yeah. Um, but Brian joined me with uh, the actress 
from his latest short film. Uh, they just put out a short called Mictophobia. It's a horror film, and he gave me like this special pre-screening of it, which was really, really cool, and it's going to be debuting here really soon, and it'll be on DVD, but we get into all that. But the actress, Kitsy Duncan, uh, she was a model turned actress. She's done a lot of great things, and so Kitsy and Brian joined me for some great talk about mictophobia, about horror, and we had a lot of fun. So, wow. I don't think I missed anybody. Um, and now, of course, on my own, I'm going to be talking about uh, a couple movies that I saw this week. Um, one is a zombie movie, of course. I saw Zombie Diaries 2. Yeah, yeah, Zombie Diaries 2. So, I'll be telling you all about what I thought about that film. And finally, I review on my own Death is No Escape which uh, Franklin from Cypher Films, of course, was so kind as to give me a special pre-screening of as well. Uh, Franklin, great guy. We just heard from him a couple weeks ago. And uh, so I finally got to watch Death is No Escape. I'll be reviewing that as well. So uh, I'm about exhausted right now. Just telling you what you're going to expect <laughs> this episode. Now, normally I tell you a few things here, a couple news items before we get on with things. I'm going to do that really quickly. The biggest, most exciting thing that happened this week was that I launched the official Electric Chair podcast website. Uh, this is a thing where you can uh, really experience uh, a lot more in depth and find out a lot more about the show and a lot more about the guests and the movies that we talk about and things in general. I'll be posting announcements and perhaps, perhaps some additional content that uh, you won't find in the regular podcast. I'm not sure yet. You know, and still, you know, we still live here on the Horror Palace Network, which is cool. Uh, this is where we hang out. But uh, the electric chair, uh, you know, at uh, electrochairshow.com. And, of course, it, it'll be in the show notes, the link you can go to. But um, all kinds of great stuff there. So I was really happy to finally get that launched. Uh, the, the other thing, now, here, by the time you hear this, I will have seen Rob Zombie and Megadeth in Pittsburgh. They just started this tour here a couple days ago. Um, I've never seen Megadeth before. Legendary band, Dave Mustaine, great guitarist. He's a legend. Um, and I'm really excited to see him. Now, uh, you know, it, it's going to be one of these things, again, where I, I just have to see Megadeth here and now before he, he gets any older. You know, he, he's getting up there in years. And he's he's led a pretty rough life, you know. He's a big partier back in the day, not so much anymore. Um, but uh, you know, a legend, and I think that uh, as a, a music fan that I am, I gotta see him. Gotta see Megadeth. And uh, it, this happens to me though. It's like these people start dying off, and then I, I never get to see them again. And of course, I hope that Dave sticks around for a lot of years. Um, but you know, it happened to me back in the '90s with the Grateful Dead. Man, you know, I'm a deadhead myself, and I love the Grateful Dead, believe it or not. And uh, they came around in 1995 to Pittsburgh, and I was just graduating high school, and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I'll get to see them again. They'll come around. Grateful Dead are always coming around. Man, I'll have plenty more opportunities to see them. And what happens? Jerry Garcia happens. He decides to go and die. Yeah, what's up with that? So, you know, there that goes. Oh, yeah, and I'm just afraid it will happen to me again, you know, and it's like I got to do that with other bands like The Stones and Rush and, um, you know, The Who, you know, well, The Who, half of The Who's already died off. So that's that's, uh, you know, a lost cause there. But so that's that's the kind of thing. You know what I mean? I got to go see Megadeth and uh, Rob Zombie. 
I'm really excited. He puts on a great show. I've seen him tons of times. Uh, I got to see him several times back in the 90s when he was with White Zombie, which was awesome. And uh, I've seen him several times since then just doing a solo thing, the Rob Zombie thing. Uh, But yeah, his stage show is just unparalleled. It's amazing. Now, the reason I'm telling you all of this is because during this tour, at least for the first show, which just happened the other night, Right before Zombie went on, they played a teaser for The Lords of Salem, which is Rob Zombie's newest film that he just directed. And I've talked about that before. Maria Olsen, of course, is in that. And, you know, so I'm excited about that. They've been playing the teaser. So I'm really happy. I'm really hoping, rather, that uh, he shows it before the show that I go to. I'll let you know. Um, now, if you if you do a search for this, you'll you'll find that somebody did a video of this on their phone and put it up on YouTube so you can see it kind of through somebody's cell phone and it's kind of shaky and weird. The quality sucks. And, uh, yeah, you know, so if you really, really want to see it, then, you know, go, go that route. But, uh, you know, I, I watched it and I'm, I didn't even know what I was seeing. So I'm hoping that I do get to see it right there in front of me on the stage, you know, before Rob Zombie takes it and just rocks it. I'm sure. So yeah, that's really exciting. So, that's all I got for you this week. Uh, let's just get on to all this greatness. They shave your head and slit your trousers and strap you to your seat. Oh, that seat. 10,000 volts coursing through this poor, frail body with which I am cursed. Well, on last week's show, we heard from Maria Olson about one of her newest projects that's really exciting called Way Down in Chinatown. And right now, I'm really happy to be talking with the man who wrote and is going to direct this film. Eric Michael Kochmer. Eric, thanks for talking Thank with you. me tonight. Oh, no matter. Yeah, now, now uh, Maria, you know, she kind of gave us her explanation of what this was all about, and it's it's a really original, creative project. And uh, I'm curious to hear it, though, you know, straight from the guy who wrote it. So uh, could you give right. everyone just kind of an idea for what we're going to be seeing with Way Down in Chinatown? Well, what we're going to see is... Um I mean, essentially, it's it's a fantasy, nightmare fantasy about a guy and a girl going through um, basically what everyone does in a relationship. Doubt, betrayal, you know, to a degree, everyone goes emotionally betrayed at one point. Um, and, you know, doubts, and then either the relationship succeeds or it doesn't succeed. The movie's kind of a fantasy explanation of that, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, where what what's kind of their imagination kind of runs wild, and we as the audience um, get to see them running wild in their own imaginations, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it looks really, really original, and really creative. You're you're blending in a lot of oh, like horror and sci-fi, and and especially mm-hmm. the noir aspect. I love that aspect of it. Yeah, I really love noir. I mean, I, I love, um, I mean, I, don't know. I was like the kid who grew up on old movies. Um, and I've always been, uh, I've like, you know, even, even in my thirties, I go to bed, I fall asleep to, uh, the third man on, on the DVD player. I mean, um, I'm kind of always been obsessed with that kind of stuff. Mm. And I really like, uh, kitchen sink drama, like kitchen sink realism, like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. It's a little intense, but like Cassavetti's kind of stuff in that that kind of, that stuff that really digs into relationships. And this turned into the thing where originally it was a play. It was kind of like a Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf type thing. 
And it morphs through developing it with uh, a couple of actors, the two leads that were just announced today, uh, Justin Dre and Stephanie Sanditz. Um, I developed with them over a year about like just trying to find out what it's about and, and what was at the heart of it. And through that, um, I, um, I started putting on these layers of style and um, of this different kind of, you know, we don't genre jump per se. I mean, it's, it's really, it is horror. It has all those elements in it. But, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's like a black and white fantasy movie, um, which nobody really does. Not anymore. Yeah, I mean, you don't see that. And, no. and, and we see, you know, you're going back to like the German expressionist kind of thing as far as yeah. influences go. And they did have that, that bit of a fantasy element back then. Mm-hmm. You know, there was the horror oh, thing, sure. but, but it was fantasy, you know, it, talking about movies like Metropolis and, and exactly. uh, you know, Dr. Caligari. Yeah, even like Nosferatu. Yeah. It's, it's a horror, you know. And this would, I mean, this this would be in that, well, I don't know if it's going to be in that category, but that's what I'm kind of going for, where it does have horrific images and there is moments of terror in it, but it, at the end of the day, it's like a, it's like a nightmarish fantasy. Cool. Um, it's not just a slasher zombie movie. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it sounds I like, like those too. Yeah, I mean, there's a time and a place for those kind of things for exactly, sure. Exactly. But you know, to me, it, it sounds like you're really um, going deeper. You know, you're you're digging yeah. a little bit more. You you have a little bit more to say, and uh, so that's that's what really has me interested because you're not just looking for cheap scares and and, and things like mm-hmm. that. I mean, you're you're really. Uh, going deeper than that, so I, I really appreciate that, man. Well, the thing is, with making an indie kind of film, you end up like you end up putting your whole life into it anyway. Yeah. If you make one, you know, so it's kind of like I see so many people make things that they they think is going to be the next big thing or is going to make money, and at the end of the day, I mean, these little films are so hard to get out there. So if you do have a chance to make one, you might as well try to make something, you know. It's really doing something rather than just trying to be the next big horror movie or the next big, you know, action movie or whatever. Right. Um, you know, just try to do your own thing and see if it works. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And this isn't your first film by any means. I mean, you have a no, lot of experience. No, it's not. It's not. Trial by error. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, I, well, I'm an actor um, by trade, for sure. Um, I've been doing that pretty steadily for the last six years in L.A., but um, I've gotten into uh, producing, and uh, and I've been writing for a long time as well. So, I mean, I've gotten into some pretty cool indie projects, but, you know, festival-wise, um, only as an actor have I been to, like, you know, some decent festivals. As far as, as, far as um, the films I've produced, one um, by uh, Owen Land, Dialogues, um, I don't know if you know much about him. He was an experimental filmmaker from the 60s. And, um, and I met him in L.A. Uh, about six years ago. And um, he was he just passed away a year ago. But he um, he was making a movie about himself, um, an experimental feature that's basically like 50 experimental shorts strung together. And um, wow. He shot this for like, it was, it was uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movie in itself. Um, he shot this for three months straight, and I ended up being thrown in as a lead. And then there was budgetary problems, naturally, um, after three months, though, so you got to give it to him. And, I mean, this is all the while he was, he was in bad shape. I ended up helping him uh, finish it. 
and get it through post and get it out to festivals. And it's pretty cool. His stuff usually premiered in, in museums and that kind of thing, where they would, you know, show segments on the wall next to art and kind of do a gallery-type screening with his films. But it was pretty interesting to to work with somebody like that, and that was my first producing experience. Um, and um, it was cool. It was very low budget, so I definitely learned how to be resourceful. Yeah, yeah. Now is that's this... kind of the key with these things. Yeah, I would, I would yeah. think so. Um, now this is um, being fundraised on Indiegogo. Um, Correct. Now, now is Correct. this is this the first time you've like crowdsourced a project of yours? Um, this is the first time I've done it myself um, oh. with something for just strictly me. But I've actually been working with this group for the past year and a half called uh, We Make Movies. And uh, they're an amazing little production collective. And um, as an actor, I've been in a lot of their stuff over the past year. And um, they just did a successful Kickstarter drive um, over raising over 10 grand. And last summer, they raised one, um, I believe they raised about seven to eight grand, somewhere in there. So um, it's definitely not my first time, but it's my first time fronting one. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and it's uh, and, and really honestly, Maria is doing all the heavy lifting with the fundraising. Um, she's she's incredible. I mean, I've been you know getting out to my own contacts, but Maria's been, I like I, I look and she's literally contacted I think ten thousand people by Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah, she's um, she's fantastic. She's, she's an amazing actress, amazing at that at fundraising. I don't even know what to say about it. Um, but uh, and that's kind of what you have to do with these campaigns is get as many people out there, and we're starting to get a nice little following. So hopefully it keeps on building, and we're able to get our goal. But we have, you know, being in this from this world, we have contingency plans. So right now we've raised over four grand. Um, we're going to make it work. Yeah, we're going to make we're going to make it work. But it would be nice to get to our goal. Yeah, and I'm hoping the people listening right now will, will check this out and consider oh, giving. Sure. I mean, you know, you can give as little as like five bucks, which is yeah, exactly. You know, nothing, and uh, it, every little bit helps. And I know you appreciate everything, Maria. Every time somebody donates, Maria just gives shout-outs like crazy mm-hmm. all over Facebook and Twitter to everybody, know, and shows great. a lot of love. No, so. she really does. She's really good at it. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, basically every single. I mean. I know people don't really always realize how much goes into a film, but like if you make a film for a really low budget, especially these days, um, we're we're using the contract to um, premiere it on the internet, and that enables us to use like a low budget budget essentially. Yeah. Um, using SAG talent, and uh, which you know I'm SAG, Marisa, it's just kind of easier to go in that direction. Um, at one point, if we feel that we can. You know, if we can raise the huge amount to pay the SAG dividends, then we go straight theatrical. But this is kind of the way that a lot of these low-budget films are going, is they will premiere on the Internet, and they're still able to go to festivals and the regular distribution routes. But everything has kind of changed. So I don't really see anything wrong with looking at the Internet as a feasible distribution option in general anyway. Um, because, I mean, the likelihood of getting people out to see a little film like this, the likelihood of reaching more people is obviously greater on the Internet than it is in theaters. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the thing. But, but yeah, uh, we're figuring it out. We actually have all of our locations locked. Um, we have the, the, the main leads. We have one 
uh, leading role left the cast, and um, and then we're doing all of our principals and uh, and day player casting this uh, Saturday. We're cleaning up all that, but um, we're well. We're very deep in pre-production, and um, yeah, and we're all set up. That's, um, that's really exciting. Um, yeah, it, the first yeah. the first role that you announced, or the first uh, I guess actor um, in your uh, string of announcements here is uh, Lisa Loring. That's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, no, she's really cool. She, I've actually been her neighbor for um, for five years. Oh wow! And and uh, we're pretty close. And so I, um, yeah, so I just asked her if she would appear in it. I wrote a really cool little cameo for her. Um, and uh, no, she's great. She's a really good friend. So it'll be a blast working with her. And um, and also uh, you got the other casting announcements there as well, right? Right. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited, and, and there are more coming out as we go. And uh, again, you know, Maria's been been great about keeping us all posted with this. And, mm-hmm. and um, Angel Corbin, another another fantastic uh, person mm-hmm. that's involved in all this. And uh, so you're, it's uh, MonsterWorks '66. It's 22 millimeter. Um, really doing some great work. Um, you know, I, I really actually learned yeah, a lot about 22 millimeter uh, on your promo clip. That you have up on yeah, the, they're relatively new, um, but uh, that's how I, I met John because he's the owner of that company, and um, he cast me in a in like a little noirish biopic that he did uh, last year called Donnie that's going to be in festivals this year. Um, he was really good. he was really fun to work with, and you know, honestly, trying to find a partner to produce a film like this. Um, it's somebody, I mean, I'm like in my early thirties and somebody my age, most people my age, if they're doing this and they're any good, they don't really want to like, you know, take a ton of time and put it into somebody else's little project that they're putting all of their, all of their ideas into. Um, they want to go off and do their own thing. Oh, yeah. John is kind of fresh, you know, out of school to a degree. Um, has been producing some stuff for like two or three years. He's eager to work on to you know work on somebody else's quote unquote masterpiece. So he's been he's been amazing um, in setting it up, and he really gets my vision and gets the kind of style I'm going for, and um, and that's the kind of stuff he's into. And it was really hard to find somebody who who kind of liked the same kind of stuff that I like. You know what I mean? Especially with the noir. A lot of people, I mean, some people like it, but they don't really get it or they don't, they're not really into doing that. Um, because it's definitely a specific thing. And then I, and I found the, uh, the DP through John, that was his DP on this project. And he's into shooting that kind of, um, that kind of work. And, uh, I think it's going to be, it's going to be real great. Um, cause everybody's kind of on the, we're all on the same page. And we all know what we want, and it's just a matter of um, it's just a matter of like getting our organization, you know, that finely tuned to where we get into executing it. We can execute it that much more smoothly. Yeah, it sounds like just a great, great coming together of a lot of great talent, brilliant minds here. I mean, you you sound like you know what you're doing, and uh, just the way everything I've been hearing about this it has a lot of promise and like i said i'm really excited and i'm just happy that i can be thanks so much man i I can be supporting this and uh 
promoting it and uh, again hoping that people can just go check it out give it a shot and uh, throw a few bucks your way because uh, i think it is worth supporting and um thank you so much man thanks so much for uh for, for doing the interview i really appreciate it absolutely well you know again way down in chinatown uh, i'll put the link up on the website and the show notes for this uh, episode and uh i think uh again you should give it a shot so eric thanks again man and uh, hopefully i'll be talking with you again soon man and uh you know, anything that I can do for you, just uh, say the word. All right. All right, Corey. Thank you so much. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Great. All right. This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. But try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the carnival of souls. She is a girl-driven man by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the carnival of souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. Well, with me right now is somebody very interesting that I met on Twitter here not long ago. Uh, she runs Burial Day Books, and uh, her name is Gravedigger, Sina Palayo. And I'm very happy you could join me today, Sina. I'm really happy you asked me to, to be here with you today. I'm very excited to talk to you, so I'm looking forward to it. Awesome, awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking your time out of your relaxing Sunday afternoon here to to talk with me and about some really great stuff that you got going on. Like I said, Burial Day Books. Um, give us a little little background on kind of how this came about and what you do. Sure, definitely. Um, well, I was, well, just a quick, some quick background of me. I'm a, I'm a former journalist and I, you know, went on into the world of journalism and, you know, I really enjoyed writing and I really enjoyed research. And so by day I do research, but then um, I just kept being drawn to writing and it's just something that's always been part of my life and been very important to me and especially horror writing and um, that entire aesthetic. And so I went on to pursue a, a master's of fine arts in writing at the School of the Art Institute. And one of the biggest frustrations that I had there was that being a horror writer, I, it was just I was just a one-woman show, and so I felt like my entire academic career, I was always defending the value of horror writing and how important it was. Um, you know, when you go back and look at people like you know Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I feel like even you know writers who don't write horror that they've looked to those writers in the past. And so, when I completed my studies, I, I had seen that there was 
it was there was a definite need for a place for you know, wonderful emerging talent in this area, and so I just said, I'm going to do it on my I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to put together a publishing company, and I'm going to show that horror is still valuable. There's still an audience, and that there needs to be a place for these people to to be able to present their work, and that's where Burial Day Books was born. And so I was really I was really I learned a lot along my way, and and the focus of it has always been gothic literary horror, and I I, I think that um, instilling horror, it's you know if you can do it through words, if you can create an emotional reaction, a physical reaction in somebody through words, I think it's brilliant. And um, so yes, that's where we're burial. Day, that's, that's how burial day books came about. Great, great, and it, it really seems that you focus a lot on excellence. And really, uh, you put a lot of work, I think, into into finding great, talented, emerging authors out there. And uh, you have a great website. Um, I, I really like all the artwork on oh, everything. You know, just from, from your from your logo and the, the cover of uh, the Gothic Blue Book that we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, so it, it seems like you really like I said, focus on excellence here. And it's not like you're just putting out anything just to get oh, it no. out there. Yeah, it was it was very important for me to to really pour over all of the content and just have a very specific and a very clean look. And I, I, I wanted to kind of echo back to this, you know, this dark Victorian era. And so I think that's where, that's where, uh, you know, the, the character of Gravedigger came about and, um, the, the character of the undertaker. And so just so everyone knows the undertaker is my husband mm-hmm. <laughs> who, um, is a computer programmer by day, but by night, you know, he's, uh, he's not like me in terms of horror being such a, uh, well, horror wasn't a major presence throughout his life. Uh, but you know, being married to me, you kind of had to, <laughs> you know, accept it and embrace it. And so I love being able to sit with him and, and learning all the horror movies he's never seen in his life. That just blows my mind. And so I will sit with him and just, you know, talk to him about horror and he's, he's really adopted it and he's really excited about all of this. And so he manages the website and, I'm really happy because then that that gives me a lot of time to focus on content and finding great authors and and talking to people and and learning um, about the trends and in writing and horror movies and um, you know just kind of seeing what's out there. It's just, it's a really interesting evolving um, genre today. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like you have a really great team there. I mean, you you two seem to complement each other perfectly for this kind of thing. So yeah, that's really great to hear. But uh, yeah, I mean, horror. Um, I mean, first of all, what what draws you to horror, you know, as opposed to any other genre? Like I said, I, I really enjoy like the, the this classic era of, of horror. Like, you know, I, I love the Twilight Zone and I, I, I love the Tales from the Dark Side and um, Tales from the Crypt. And I, I, I feel um, it's more about the what you can't see. And I I'm really interested in just, just either through writing or through film, what can instill fear without being very blatant. I think that's just amazing when, when you know, just you're seeing a character or reading about a character that's approaching a door and just the environment around that moment just scares you. And or, or anxiety also is something that I'm really drawn to, being able to cre- create this element of anxiety in film and in text. I think that's brilliant. Do you think that's missing nowadays from a lot of horror? Do you think it's too much, you know, blood and guts and, and fast kills and that kind of thing and not enough psychological kind of horrific atmosphere? I think that um, 
Yes and no. Like I think that um, I, I want to say that there's a place for everything, and and um, you know the the, the um, explicit horror um, like with Hostel or the the Saw franchise. While I'm not particularly drawn to it, I do see that you know I do see that there there is an audience that's drawn to it, and maybe it's just because we've become as a society we have to have. Uh, Things have to be more tangible. We have to be able to see it and, and really experience it. So um, I'm not sure. I, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not particularly drawn to it because I feel like you can do so much um, without, you know, showing a victim on screen being tortured or gutted. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, there's people that watch that and that's fine. It's uh, There's a place for I think there's a, especially in the horror industry, there's so many different niches. But I... I really like that. Um, there's. It seems like there's. Um, they're starting to become more of a revival, with uh, very subtle types of horror, like the film Insidious or uh, the Woman in Black. Um, that those did well, and so I, I, I get excited when I see films like that doing well because it, it makes me believe. Yes, there's still a place for people like me who like classic horror. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, especially in the mainstream right now, you don't see a lot of these kind of slow burn, kind of creep up on you terror sort of films really hitting the big theaters a whole lot. And it's interesting you brought up The Woman in Black because I, I agree. I think it does that really, really well, and I enjoyed that. Um, but, uh, you know, when you say it's scarier what you don't see a lot of times than what they do put in front of you on the screen, and uh, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. I think a horror resides in the mind. And oh, is, yeah. is not necessarily uh, a visual thing. And, uh, yeah. Yes. And I think, um, I think uh, like H.P. Lovecraft, he used to do, he did that a lot where in his writing, he would just say the terrible monster. He would just use these adjectives to describe a monster. And he kind of left it up to the reader to develop the monster in their head. And so I, I, I think that's great because, we, you know, what is frightening visually to me might, might be something different to you. And so he 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 was able to really push that. And um, especially today, there's so many horror writers that look back to him um, for influence, uh, even in the, you know, the sci-fi genre. So so it can be done in text as well. So I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, who, who would be, I guess, some of your major influences or some of your favorite authors out there who's who's inspired you over the years? Oh, it's... um. I go from you know the, the the classics to you know Edgar Allan Poe, who I feel he's the the godfather of the genre. To um, you know we have H.P. Lovecraft. I really enjoy Neil Gaiman's work, um, Joe Hill, um, you know Ray Bradbury, Stephen King, um, and 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 in terms of uh, you know there are there is a female presence. Uh, Shirley Jackson. I I I really enjoy her work, and mm -hmm. she's influenced me a lot. So. Um, so yeah, I'm always and I'm always looking for for you know for 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 new for new writers and, and I've been lucky to find some really great new writers. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And I I, I really appreciate that you're doing this and and uh, offering this kind of outlet and this venue for for new writers to be coming out because I think that's really really important. And uh, you've done that actually just recently. You put out a book um, yeah. and I, I picked it up on Kindle and I'm really really enjoying it. And I mentioned it earlier. It's the Gothic Blue Book. Um, 99 cents on Kindle, and I'll tell you, that's a steal for this mm -hmm. thing because I'm only, like I said, a few stories into it, and I've already got more, much more than 99 cents worth of, of entertainment out of it. Um, so tell, tell me about the Gothic Blue Book. Burial Day Books, we publish one new short story each month, 
Um, and one of the keys to the short stories online or just our, our overall like aesthetic, it has to be your story has to be ingrained in some type of folklore, superstition, um, myth or legend. And while I was researching, you know, uh, just the history of horror, I found that in the 18th century, there were these, um, you could even call them like the equivalents of like, they were like the chat books of, of today, you know, they're, they're smaller books, just a few pages, but um, there were these books that were really, really cheap, you could probably get them for like a shilling, and they were, you know, condensed versions of the gothic novel, and I, I thought it was a really great idea, and so... What I did was, um, you know, I, I put out a call for submission, and I, you know, I got some great, great responses. But, you know, I was looking for um, stories that hearkened to or honored the Gothic story, and so the, the Gothic story you can think of, you know, dark castles and cemeteries, haunted houses, um, and, and it, it sounds like it's a it's a limited. Um, a, a, a limited framework to work with, but it, it really isn't. Um, and so just the variety of the stories in the book, you know, I was just really surprised with, with the quality and the variety of the stories. Um, one of our, one of the feature authors in the collection is um, John Everson, who I was very, very excited to work with him. I, I was, uh, I was very excited that he even answered my email. It just kind of took me away. I'm like, wow, I'm talking to John Everson. This is like, this is not happening. And he's a he's a Bram Stoker award winning author of you know supernatural horror novels like uh, Covenant and uh, Sacrifice and um, The Pumpkin Man, which he which he released last year. And so he submitted um, a short story. And I also worked with this really new writer, Abe Grace, who has a very very short story. Uh, about death and it was just really brilliant and it, it, I would, yeah if you pick it up that's what that's one of um uh, one of my favorite short stories and then we also have Kate Trap Jones who just um released his novel which I need to remember The Sinner um through Bloodbound Books and he submitted a short story and so it, I was like I said I was just kind of really shocked and and, and impressed and thankful that of the the variety of um, you know submissions that we got and the we have everything in the collection from um, you know the Grim Reaper to um, a kind of uh, sci-fi horror blend and um, you know we have witches that are represented. Um, I have a short story in there called The Grave Digger about a psychopathic uh, breakdown and. Um, we also have there. I, I also. I, I what was important to me was also to feature horror poetry, and I know people always hear the word, the word poetry and they want to rip their hair out. Like I can't do this, but I was really impressed when I started kind of getting submissions for the website to see that there are really great poets that were working with this, these really dark elements, and so I I featured um, two um, two poets, one of which is Lisa Stock, who's a filmmaker, and. Um, uh, Helena Marie Carnes Jeffries. So uh, I was really impressed with the collection. I f actually formatted it myself, and uh, The Undertaker formatted it for ebook. And so we did it all ourselves. And I, I worked with P. Maxwell, who is also a writer, and she helped uh, with the editing because um, I was just so paranoid. And I kept, I think I read the over maybe 10, 20 times because I just really wanted it. I really wanted people to enjoy it, and so you know, I'm always looking for feedback, and we're accepting submissions for the next collection just because this one did so well. 
I love it. I love to hear it. And I was going to bring that up too, because you, you are looking to do a second one and, and uh, looking to get more authors into that. So that is really exciting. And uh, I can't say it now because it's a surprise, but the, and for some reason, I guess it's just, it's just the way it worked out. Like last year we featured John Everson, who's a Bram Stoker award-winning author. But this year we have another headliner that is, I, I started shaking and crying when this headliner responded to me and that he was in a submit, uh, in a, so he, so I, I gave that away, but, <laughs> but we do have a big headliner that I'm really, really looking forward to announcing. So as soon as I announce everybody, um, this summer, we have another really big horror writer that's on, that's going to be in the collection. And, uh, yeah, it, I'm just, I, I could, I got really hard. I never thought it would happen, but it, I got really creepy horror fangirl. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great to hear. Congratulations on that. I can't wait to find out uh, who this is because that's, that's great news. Um, but, uh, yeah, you did a great job formatting this thing. I mean, it, it's, it's 100% professional. I mean, this looks like a big big production, like big big-time company put this thing together. Um, and, it, was uh, me at the, it was me at the kitchen table with maybe two pots of coffee. Awesome. <laughs> uh, it was so yeah thank you i love it and uh you know when you're talking about the variety you know and you felt like some people might think that you're just really limiting the kinds of stories you're gonna get just staying gothic supernatural um i've often found that when you limit your your genre to that kind of thing and just don't say general horror so you can give me vampires or zombies or Mm -hmm. werewolves or ghosts whatever you want um when you limit it though like you have that actually, I think, opens the door to so much more creativity um, because you're giving people a given framework and uh, people really, I think, have to go outside the box and start thinking up new ways to do things, things that people have maybe never done before. And uh, I think that's a great way to actually inspire further creativity and get a greater variety of, of stories. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, 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 I agree with you and I know... Um... Like you know, the Undertaker was very nervous about the the limit that I had put, and I and I just really wanted to, you know, just like the website and what we do, I really wanted just to be clear on what my mission was with the pro- with the overall you know Burial Day Brooks project, and I felt like you know you know up until that point we 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 had already been online for a few months and we were getting consistent submissions, and I told him no, I, this is this is my baby. I want I, I think it could work, and and it wound up working. And like I said, the the variety of the content and the and the collection is is really surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the poetry does work as well. You know, I, I was surprised to see you know a couple poems thrown in there, but uh, when I read them, it was they were great. Uh, they were very well crafted. So you know, I applaud you for throwing those in there. So. Yeah, and um, one of the one of the and another one of the poets, um, Mark Rivolo, owns um, uh, Bucket of Blood uh, Books, which is a which is a horror horror uh, bookstore that you know it's just um, even these people's backgrounds. It was just interesting to see how. The, the genre of horror impacts their everyday, even if the, you know it's not their day job. You know they still have like you know Mark Bavillo, but this is his day job, or Lisa Stock, who does um, you know filmmaking, and that, that was just interesting to see. Great. Well, again, you know, congratulations on the success of the Gothic Blue Book, and I urge everybody out there, man, ninety nine cents. Like I said, it's a steal. So I'm going to have uh, these links all up in the uh, show notes on the website, just about Burial Day Books and links to Amazon where you can pick this up. 
because um, it's really exciting, and we'll definitely be looking out for that that second one. Yeah, great, so, thank you. Awesome. Definitely, the submissions are open. Go for it. You know, set if you're if if you're unsure if it works, just send it to me anyway. I, I I'll take a look at anything and just see. And you never know; it, it might actually fit in the collection. Awesome, awesome. You, yeah, can't hurt to try. So just right. just do it. Um, so you know, we're talking about film, and uh, what what are some of your your favorite horror films? If you if you want to throw in just just one of the ones that you love and could watch over and over again and never gets old, what are what are some of those for you? Well, the, the funny the funny thing is, like when you had asked me earlier, like how did I get into horror? But I, the, one of the ways I did get into horror was watching Nightmare on Elm Street. I was probably I was just a little girl, and my older brother to scare me locked me in the room with him. So I could watch this the scene where, where Freddy Krueger was walking down the alleyway and both of his arms outstretched. And that image is always burned in my mind when I think of horror. I think of that scene. But um, I don't know. So that's kind of how I got into it. I got, I got traumatized into <laughs> in, into loving horror. Um, I don't know. I, I, I really enjoy I really enjoy the classics. I'm always going to kind of gravitate towards the classics. I do like all the old, you know, old Vincent Price films. Um, I, I, I love Psycho. I love, um, and, and, and like I said, they're they're doing some really good things um, with, with with these recent uh, these newer horror films, like Insidious. I was really surprised with that that film, and yeah, I was really surprised with that one. That one, that one did such a good job without showing um, a lot of gore. And uh, the Woman in Black, what they they did a great adaptation. You know, it was it was a, a, a novel, and they just did a great um, just the, the the character I feel in that film was was the setting um and so i think they captured the, the setting uh, beautifully and um you know I, I enjoy the old twilight zones and uh you know i enjoy like old tales from the crypt, crypt episodes so i um I'm, I'm kind of open to all things horror and i think uh um i've always kind of been like anti-zombie for a while oh was, come on but, oh. I, but i've gravitated to the zombie uh, uh you know I've, I, and i've seen all of the you know acting george romero's work it's brilliant it's, it's beautiful but um <laughs> uh so so, so I've, I've been turned on to zombies now so cool, cool. like with the with wreck i was i was really impressed with wreck and uh wreck too i think they did a good job there so and and zombies is another area where it's like you have all these kind of different genre or Zombies within zombies are like these different takes on the zombie genre. So, um, so I've been turned on to zombies, guys. <laughs> so. Awesome! I'm glad to hear it because zombies are like it for me. Like they do it for yeah. me like nothing else, and they're my favorites. So, that that's good um, though that you're opening up to them. And I think, um, like uh, I think there's always like a, you know, there's always a zeitgeist. There's always like something that's big in that time, and so you can't deny that zombies are big right now because you know. It, I think it's because of technology and people's you know paranoia with health and so it's it definitely fits in the society that we live in today oh absolutely yeah they're, they're a great metaphor for so much you know and it's changed throughout yeah. even when they started making zombie films back in the 20s and 30s you know and uh, oh, yeah. up until now they've always kind of represented something going on at that point mm -hmm. in time so you're you're exactly right um, and uh, you, you picked a great film for us to talk about today. And this is one, I, you know, we were talking uh, before the show, and, and I said, man, I've always wanted to talk about this. This is, you know, one of my favorites, and I, I, it's just never come up. And, and so I'm really glad that you selected this. Uh, this is Carnival of Souls, uh, 1962. And uh, why did you pick this one out? Is there any particular reason? I, I, I just love this film, I think. Um, 
just it, it does amazing things with with the music with the, just the black and white cinematography it's just it's one of my it's one of my favorite films so so I'm really excited that you wanted to talk about it because uh, no one ever wants to talk, talk about this film with me so oh <laughs> man man well this is this is great I'm glad that uh, we can be doing this um, so basically I'll give a quick synopsis of what happens and uh, I, I usually don't try to spoil things um, so there there's a big reveal at the end and I'm not gonna you know really get into that because in the event that Anybody out there hasn't seen this, and I can't imagine that there are there are too many out there that haven't seen it. Uh, this is a pretty popular one in the horror genre, but uh, if you haven't, you need to go see it, and there, there's some uh, great rewards at the end that uh, I think you're really going to appreciate because it uh, kind of gets you at the end, which is great. Um, but uh, there's a girl, she's with her friends, and they're driving along the one day, and, and uh, her friend is driving, and they're stopped at a light or something, and a car full of guys pulls up next to them and says, hey, you want to drag? And they're like, yeah, we'll drag. So they take off and they're going side by side and they're racing and they end up getting onto this old rickety wooden bridge and they're side by side and, and it's real uneven and it's really not made for two cars side by side in the first place. And the car with the girls in it ends up uh, going over the side of the bridge into the river. And it seems it's at a point in time during the year when the river's really high. And it, so when the police come, they can't uh, really pull anything out. They, they have trouble locating the car. Um, but then out of nowhere, as everyone's kind of gathered around and they're trying to figure out what exactly happened, this girl just kind of comes out of the river and she's kind of dazed and you know, a little bit, a little bit traumatized, you know, visibly uh, by what's just happened. But uh, you know, she somehow managed to climb out of the river, and um, somehow we go forward in time, and she just kind of starts. Uh, assimilating to life she's kind of a loner um but you know she gets a job she's an organist a very talented organist gets a job at a church and gets a room uh at this place and strange things start to happen uh, she starts seeing the face of this really ghastly looking guy all over the place and she sees him in the road she sees him in the mirror just just everywhere she can't figure out what's happening and and every once in a while she's just thrown into these weird funks where she's just experiencing the, uh, this whole uh, whole weird thing. The camera starts spinning, and she's focusing on these strange objects, and she starts seeing these faces. She has these visions and dreams of all these ghastly figures, and uh, she's really obsessed and fascinated with this abandoned pavilion kind of out in the middle of the nowhere, and it's been shut down for years and kind of closed off. But somehow she's drawn to this place. So as the movie goes on, it all kind of comes together. Um, the, the pavilion, these ghostly figures, and then kind of what happens to this girl. And uh, there's some really, really strange things going on. So I'm, I'm not going to go much further than that um, because uh, you know, I think people do need to see this. So uh, this is an interesting one. It's in the public domain, um, which uh, kind of was a mistake, I guess, on the on the part of the director, um, uh, Herc Harvey, who, you know, this was a point in time when you had to put a proper copyright notice on your films, or on any work, actually, that you wanted copyrighted, um, or else it, it anybody could take it and do with it what they wanted. And we saw that happen in Night of the Living Dead. And it's funny that uh, George Romero was actually really, really inspired by this movie to make mm -hmm. Night of the Living Dead. And uh, it's one of the ones he cites over and over again. So it, it's just kind of... 
kind of funny that this same thing happened to both films. You know, mm-hmm. it was thrown into the public domain. So, uh, so yeah, what uh, what strikes you about this one? Um, just visually, you know, you're talking about the cinematography and the, and the shadows and like that. Yeah. And, and um, what gets you about this? I think um, there's just so much with with this. You know, it's, it's not very long. I think maybe it's uh, just like an hour and like 10, 15 minutes. But it makes, there's just this level of eeriness all throughout the film um, and almost this level of unease. It, it's And it's not, um, nothing is really blatant. Everything is very subtle and everything almost becomes the everyday mundane becomes eerie and it becomes you know, a, 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 a moment of panic and, you know, there's, you know, that, there's the, that occurrence where she thinks she sees something but doesn't see something. And, um, and like you said, with, um, you know, def- George, this film definitely influenced George Romero. You know, you can see it throughout with these, um, you know, with, with the, the, the appearance of this, this man but that, that appears, you know, throughout, um, throughout the film and, and even just her, her obsession or just her fixation with this abandoned pavilion. And there's this great scene where she's just um, walking through this pavilion by herself and things move. And so um, you almost begin to wonder, is she seeing these things? Isn't she seeing these things? And, you know, there, there are people throughout the film that try to, you know, come to her aid but she pushes everyone away. She doesn't want any. Um, she doesn't want human interaction. She she blatantly says she has no interest for human interaction. She doesn't want to deal with anyone. She wants to be completely by herself, and which is interesting then because then you wonder well what was her relationship then with these women in the beginning of the film who, who she was riding along in a car with and now she doesn't want to have anything with anyone and so um, you know just so her. Her, her rebelliousness to, to, to interact with people just really fascinated me. And, and, and then there were these, you know, really strange sequences where she would be in a normal situation and then these, these figures would appear and then, you know, and even, you know, there's some great scenes in the pavilion with, you know, other very similar um, creepy figures, you know, very pale faces and, and, and dark eyes. And, and there's this kind of a, um, there's this theme of of water that went, runs throughout, which is which is also really interesting. So, it's it, it does a lot of and then with the music, I think there's a lot of moments throughout the film where no one's spoken for a few minutes, or there's really no noise be, be, besides this amazing organ music, um, and it, and it happens in the car when she's driving um, to Utah to her new job to be uh, a, a church organist, and then. Um, it's almost like this this music and this pavilion is calling to her and you know she gets into these interesting trance-like states so um if if no one's seen it i think you really need to, to watch this film and 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 um i think it's really clear how it's uh influenced uh, you know a lot of um, you know d- directors who have worked in in the horror industry or even um work with elements of suspense um just because it does a lot without doing a lot. Yeah, yeah, and it is very, very creepy. Uh, just oh, yeah. overall, they did so much with so little because so much is implied. And even you were talking about how reality and, and dreams and, and what is real, what isn't, that whole line is blurred. And you don't know, she doesn't know. There are a lot of questions. It keeps you guessing throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those figures, those those 
ghostly ghoul things that we're seeing are so scary. They're, they're so, yeah. especially in the water. Um, the scenes of them coming out of the water and submerged in the mm-hmm. water. That is just that that's creepy. And this is the kind of movie you gotta watch it in the dark. You know, oh, yeah. you gotta be alone and just get the right atmosphere for this for it to have its full effect. But uh, and... I, I like also what happens when like just normal people then seem to be so creepy. Like they're not doing anything out of their normal interactions. Like you know, the, the priest is just being a priest, and you know, there's this man that tries to, uh, you know, he you know he is a little creepy guy, but you know he wants to take some interest in her, and there's a doctor involved that you know really, you know he wants to sh- he wants to help this woman, and it just. It just makes everything so eerie, and so, and you begin to question yourself, and you know all these scenarios start running through your mind, like what is going on? And um, I think a lot of current horror films have kind of, you know, touched upon, you know, some type of uh, themes within this film. So if if, if you watch it, I think um, a lot of present day horror movies that you've seen, you'll, you'll kind of start seeing where. Um, some directors and writers have 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 watched have been influenced by this piece of work. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I love the scene um, where she's playing the organ and she just gets thrown into this you know crazy trance again and starts seeing things. And you brought up a great point about just making the the ordinary mundane seem really strange and really weird. And I, I, it's not like they do camera tricks on these things to make oh, yeah. them look weird. It's just the context, putting it, you know, with, with other shots, with close-ups of her, with the organ. Like, there are shots of the stained glass window. And, mm-hmm. there, you know, there's, there's nothing particularly there's strange about a stained glass window. But when you put it in context of that, it's creepy. It's weird. It's definitely. It's, um, yeah, I think that was just so so great to do and um and, and like you know I, I i like when things are subtle and like with writing or with film and, and and it just becomes so strange and when you when you remove it from this it's everyday uh you know normal and um normal view and you apply something over it like you just apply some organ music over this thing glass window it makes it pretty creepy and just like the the, the, the film does have like these long stretches of silence and i think uh, you know, horror um, directors can do amazing things with just using silence and space and noise. And um, like I said, the organ music in this film is amazing. It's just one of the creepiest things I've ever I've, I've ever seen. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's so weird how just the absence of, of something can have such a profound effect in those those sequences where she's not hearing anything and and people are ignoring her she's trying to talk to people but it's like they're just looking right through her uh, those are so creepy and there's very little sound uh, during any of that uh, she doesn't hear anything you just hear her voice her thoughts um mm-hmm. and it is so so effective and this is one of those movies that i have so much respect for for a variety of reasons but one of them is that it respects the intelligence of the audience where it doesn't have to tell you everything. It doesn't have to show you everything. It has no like blood or gore or anything like that. Just uh, as far as horror visuals go, you know, it's mainly these, these crazy trance sequences and then the, uh, the ghouls themselves are are very scary, but uh, you know, it doesn't rely on that though. 
No. You know? And there's this beautiful scene in the pavilion where they you have, you know, these ghouls paired up and they're 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 just dancing around and it's just it's just one of the one of my favorite scenes and uh, uh the man who is like the main ghoul that's kind of um, you know, peer to her throughout the film. You know, he just starts approaching her with his, you know, fingers out towards her, and I think that's that's one of the, the cre- and if you're watching this in the dark yes. by yourself or with another person, that's like the, one of the awesome, most awesome moments throughout this film. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, this is in the public domain, so if you haven't seen it, you know, you can go. It's probably on YouTube or you know somewhere on the net for free. You can go watch it or it's always on like every like 50 pack horror collection that you see out there. Like this is always one of them, you know? Yeah, uh, I think it is on YouTube actually. I, I was, um, I had, I watched it. I have Netflix, so it's on, it's on the Netflix, for, you know, it's a stream, but I'm pretty sure you guys can find it on, on YouTube for free, which is great. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So where do you give this? Um, if you had to rate this one to 10, uh, on the oh. grand scale of horror movies of all time, and you were just recommending this to a horror audience, where would you fall? Oh, I would say, oh my gosh. I'm always really apprehensive to give her anything a 10, but I think this would, this one, would, I'd give this one a nine. This one's good. Awesome. And I agree. I'm right there with you. Uh, nine out of 10. This does it all right. Um, this is just one of the classics. This goes back to a time when, uh, you know, people were making a lot of films this way. And I, uh, I really, really like it. You know, they had, I mean, they had almost no money to work with this is a very very low budget even for that time i just found out that the man is uh one of the directors one of the creepy guys like the creepy guy in the in the film i think it's herc it is yeah he's like the main main creepy guy i didn't know that that was (laughs) awesome like hey i'm you know we we have we we don't have a budget to you know suit somebody up as a creepy guy it's gonna be me (laughs) yeah yeah oh and i would if i made a movie i would totally cast myself in it oh yeah yeah have to oh yeah yeah, so, well, awesome, awesome. Everyone needs to go out and see Carnival of Souls. There was a, a remake made. Have you have you seen the remake? I think Wes Craven made it here like 10 oh. or 15 years ago. I haven't, but... Uh, I'm always really scared to watch remakes <laughs> because they're usually so poor. Um, yeah. So I'm not a big... I, I'm not a big... If, if there's a... I think I, I forced myself to watch, like, a, you know, going back to Nightmare on Elm Street, I went, I went back to watch the remake, and I, I was just so disappointed. I'm like, <laughs> I'm never watching a remake of a horror movie that I loved again. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's rough. They're few and far between that they really mm-hmm. do it right. But uh, every yeah. once in a while you get one. But, yeah, I didn't know if uh, I'd just been reading about it, and I saw it was Wes Craven, and he's kind of hit or miss. And so I didn't know if it was any yeah. good. But uh, no, well, thanks again for talking with me today, uh, Cena. Thank this you is, for uh, inviting me to talk. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, burialdaybooks.com, or Burial Day, I'm sorry, burialday.com um, is where you want to go and uh, check out everything. And uh, is there any other um, plugs that you want to give up there? Anything you, you got uh, coming up other than uh, the second Gothic Blue book? But no, uh, just, just check out the website. We have a lot of free content up on the website. I, I blog you know, once a week about some type of superstition, uh, horror, myth, or legend, or trend in, in, in the world of horror. We, we have a lot of free short stories. I, I publish a new author each month. Feel free to submit for uh, one of the, the monthly submissions and you know, go ahead and submit to, to, to the second collection and look out in July for the announcement of who's made it. And um, So yeah, thank you so much, Corey, for inviting me to talk. This has been a lot of fun. And um, Yes, and watch Carnival of Souls. You have to. Cool, cool. Well, Cena, thank you again for your time, and let's uh, do this again soon. Thank you, definitely. All right.
you could just forget. It's not what happened. It's what we did. Right now, I'm talking with a really great guy, author Dino Sands. Now, he's out of the wonderful city of Chicago, which I just happen to love. It holds a special place in my heart, which makes it extra cool. But uh, he grew up in the South, and he's been quite prolific with his writing over the last decade. So, Dino, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Midnight Corey. Thank you very much. Well, it's very kind of you to take your time to talk to me because you have a lot of exciting things going on. And uh, before we get to your newest book, which I definitely want to talk about here, um, can you give us a little background about yourself and kind of what you've been doing and uh, kind of what your career involves? Well, um, for the last 10 years, I've been writing. You, uh, you know that. And um, I have six children. And it's been kind of hectic trying to write with six children, but I always had a dream to wow. be the best selling author. So i uh, I've just put the pen to the paper and kept writing. Um, my first book, Miss Mary, was a Southern Nightmare. did really well. And I came back with um, I Am and uh, Pen of Iniquity and um, Blood Plantation. And my next book, uh, hopefully, will be coming out in September called Cry Heaven, Cry Hell, The Return of Miss Mary Weather, which is a sequel to Miss Mary Weather from 2001. I'm in the educational field here in Chicago, 20 years. Uh, I love writing. That is my passion. And I've written several articles. I've write poems, short stories, movie screenplays. All I do is write. So that's all I do is write. And uh, working right, I guess that's what it is. I love it. It sounds like you have such a passion for what you do, and you just can't help but do it. Just can't help but write and just have fun with it. I just have fun with it. I... I uh, and especially my horror, my fictional horror, I love fictional horror because I call it the unreality. Mm-hmm. And some people, you know, it, it, you know, the basic things of life scare people, you know, stopping at a, you know, before you have an accident, you hit your brakes, that's scary. But that's not horror. And I like to do the unreality uh, or horror to, you know, it's almost like the what if theory I have. What if this happens? And what if you see this ghost or whatever, what if you see this uh, phenomenon in in a spiritual sense that will actually scare you, that's not human? And I try to write like that. I try to see what would scare the average person that um, will propel them into such fear that they don't want to come outside. That's awesome. I love to hear that, man. You know, Blood Plantation, it's the one that's out there right now. It's your newest work available. And this sounds really unique. There's, there, you're, you're really getting into some deep themes in here, and you're tackling some things that sound, uh, you know, somewhat, somewhat controversial because you go into things like slavery and, and, and things like that. So, so what's, what's Blood Plantation all about? Well, I've always, um, growing up in the South, and my grandparents and my parents, you know, and, and they've always 
educating me about history and what's going on with my culture. And I'll, I wanted to write some historical fiction um, to, to capture that, that, <clears throat> that instant in that time. But I wanted, you know, since I'm a horror writer, I wanted to make sure it was scary. But I, I wanted to make sure people understood what, what had happened and what was going on, but put it on a horror twist. And, um, and that's what drove me to write that. Um, it took me a long time to get a title because there's a lot of um, movies, Escape from Blood Plantation and things of that sort. And, but I, I wanted to stick with Blood Plantation because, you know, historically, yes, my culture has, has endured a lot of things, but I wanted to still put that twist of fiction in there and, and horror and, you know, and things like that. So that's what, that, that, that what drove me to, to write that. Hmm. I know you say historical fiction. Um, now, you were also saying that uh, you knew a lot about history, and you're obviously a very, very educated guy. I mean, you, you really know your stuff. But uh, how much research uh, did you have to put into this uh, to make sure that you kind of got the facts it, it, somewhat accurate, you know, within this fictional uh, framework that you're weaving? But uh, was there a lot of research, or did you kind of have that thing down? I, I, I kind of had it down, but I, I've had through the years growing up, I've read everything about that. Like I said, I was educated on that, on my culture and things that happened. And, I, and you know, for, for, uh, in the book Virginia, you have North Carolina, Alabama, you have a lot of southern states that I wanted to pick Virginia, but I'm from, I was born in Alabama, but I picked Virginia, and um, it was it was an ongoing thing. I grew up understanding that, that, that I call it a phenomenon, or that, injustice um, so I wanted to put it down on paper but I, like I said since I'm a horror writer I wanted to bring that to the forefront also but I wanted to make sure people understood what what happens if you did not know what happened but I didn't want to linger on that per se I still wanted to bring my, my horror my horror writing out so and that's that's the basis of blood plantation. It is to let people know about the plantations. I've, I have researched. I have several books on plantations, which they have right now in the South that people can tour. But I want to understand that it, 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 a lot of blood was shed. But on this specific instance, I wanted to capture the Southern and the Middle Passage and coming to America and things like that and what occurred. So it, it was a basis of everything that I've learned through life, through my life, and um, through my grandparents and, and and reading books, and my parents also. So I wanted to put that down, and that's my first historical fiction novel. I may not write another one, but I just wanted to bring that out. Mm-hmm. You have a great Southern accent, by the way. I love it. I love uh, <laughs> the, the the tone of your voice, man. It, it sounds great. But uh, you know, I'm a I'm a northern guy. I'm up in Pennsylvania, and I've only visited the South, um, you know, a handful of times in my life. And like you said, you grew up in Alabama. So uh, when you grew up, I mean, did you feel what's it, what's kind of I guess the the racial temperature down there? Um, you know, were you, were you feeling kind of a, a racial tension down there when you were growing up, or, or are things pretty pretty uh, pretty even right now? I guess. Well, right now it's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. But as a young, as a young boy, yes, I felt my 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 share of racial tension, and it's 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 across America. It's not just down there. Right. It, at that time in life, it was a little bit unbearing. But 
you know, I you know, I was raised to be strong and then when I when my parents moved to up north, I, I kept that, you know, that southern mentality and understanding thing, but it was is across the board as they say. It it, it it hasn't gone anywhere to this day it hasn't gone anywhere. Mm. And that's a shame that's a shame that it hasn't disappeared, but it may not never disappear. So you just have to uh go with the flow and try to try to deal with it and that's like I said before, it's a shame. But yes, back in the South it was it, it was a struggle. Mm. My parents, my mother and my father, they struggled, you know, in the South about you know, in racism and uh segregation and things of that sort. Uh, my mother was down there when they were in um, Selma when the dogs and um, the water hoses were sprayed on African-Americans, blacks, you know. So oh, wow. she, ta- she taught me a lot about, you know, Southern culture and, and, and things of that sort, but not to be, not to judge people on that. So I don't judge people, uh, other races on that. It was just the experience that you live with and you grow from that. And it has helped. It has helped me grow. It has helped my children. I've explained to them and made sure they understood what had happened and what's happening now, and and and, and move on. So, and, and that's the essence of everything. I mean, that's just how it was, and that's how it is now. Like I said, it's a shame, but that's how it is right now. That is a shame, and I, you know, as as educated and as advanced a culture as we are. Um, you know, it is sad to say, I don't, I don't think it's ever completely going to go away. Um, it's just something about what people see and, and maybe how people have grown up and the things that have been instilled in them that, uh, you know, it's going to be really, really tough to get rid of that. So it, it is sad. Well, I'm glad because it, 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 racism is not, you're not born racist, you, it's taught. Right. And stop teaching, if we stop teaching racism, then the world would be a better place because you're not you're not born racist. You're taught to be racist, so and that's the problem. Right. And with blood plantation, I just want to bring a historical fact out with a horror fictional twist because I'm a horror writer. But I want to make sure people understood about what what had happened and what's happening now, but on a horror fiction twist. Right. Now, it looks, in Blood Plantation, I know you have a supernatural aspect going on. That's the kind of brand of horror that you bring to us. Um, so do you mainly concentrate when you write horror? Is it mainly like a supernatural thing that you're going for? Or do you get into kind of monster horror like like zombies or vampires? Or, or are you mainly a supernatural guy? No, 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 no. I try to stay away from monsters and vampires. Everyone does that. I try to to grasp the, the, the reality that people see every day and flip it to an unreality of supernatural thing that it doesn't occur all the time. And when it occurs, it scares you. Hmm. I mean, at the point that you can't breathe. So I'm really not uh, on that. It's just like my first novel, Miss Mary Weather Saw the Nightmare. She was the first female that I wrote because I was kind of tired of the Jason and the Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger's. Mm-hmm. Because they were males. So I said I wanted to write something, you know, a female aspect to be poor uh, and supernatural. So that's why I did Miss Meriwether for the nightmare. So I, I really don't like the vampires and zombies because that's easy to do. Zombies are dead. Everybody knows that. And vampires, we already know the story. And a lot of people write about vampires. So I, I, I don't try to write those kind of things. I try to go, I try to dig deep. Mm-hmm. Deep is something that 
everyday people may see and not understand, but will scare them to the point that they're, they can't breathe. That's my whole aspect of my life. I love it. I love it. That is it. Things like that, like you said, grip you a lot deeper. And you have, you have opportunities, I think, to engage people a lot more and to really say a lot more. You know, you have a lot of subtext, you know, as you're talking about in Blood Plantation and, and your other works. There are, you know, social themes and historical themes that I think you can explore much easier the way that you're writing supernaturally as opposed to vampires, zombies, a werewolf, you know, the the giant monster thing. So uh, I really right, like that's, that. That's understandable because, you know, I research, I have about over, about over 500 books on different cultures, different religions. So I try to read all those books. So when I start writing on, on any any horror, I try to uh, intertwine those different cultures and uh, and things of that sort. So I try to I, I I try to grasp the plot tightly before I start writing and, and try to see and, and try to make sure that it hasn't been written. I know it's it's kind of hard because there's a lot of great writers out there. Yeah. So I try to make sure that I I don't take from any writers or any movies that's been done and. And, and just write because if I'm, I, when I read and I educate myself from different cultures, I try to intertwine or combine those cultures in my writing. Hmm. So you're the kind of writer then that that outlines things, researches things before you actually start uh, putting the narrative down on paper. Um, because I know there are some writers out there that uh, just start writing and they don't necessarily know where it's going and they kind of write things on the fly off the top of their head and that's the way that the ideas flow for them but you sound like you're far more structured you plan things out and you know where your book is going to end even before you start it is that is that the truth here yes that's that 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 is the true core that's that's exactly i already have planned out the beginning the middle and the end already mm. before i have even start writing because i want to i know i want to know where it's going mm-hmm. if down the line i might change a few things but i know exactly how it's going to end before i even finish writing Mm-hmm. Because I have I have thought about it. I've taken notes. I've read a couple of books. I've I've I've, 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 I've talked to people. I've sat out and just watched people walk and watch things happen. So I intertwine America's living with my writing. I just don't just write. I watch and, and see things and with how the wind blows and who does this and how a person walks to grab my characters and and things of that sort before I even start writing. Then when I start writing, there you go. Excellent. Excellent. Now, you know, obviously, to be a a great writer, you also have to be a very avid reader yourself and read a lot of books. And I know you've already said, you know, you've got tons of books you read all the time. But as far as uh, horror writers go, are there any ones in particular that, that have really inspired you? You already know, Corey. I just said Stephen King. <laughs> I mean, that's just that's one. I said when I grow up, I want to be just like him. Uh-huh. But um, I mean, I mean, not just just not, not writers like Stephen King, even um, Dickens or uh, Socrates and and things, Maya Angelou, and I mean all writers. I just don't take just more writers. I take from all genres of writers, uh, uh, past and future, uh, and present to grasp my idea on writing. I mean, I love them all, you know, but I, I try to, I, I like historical writers. Mm-hmm. I like uh, um, Machiavelli. 
and things that I read those kind of writers, even political or whatever, their idea of what structure or society should be about, I, I, I read them all. You know, I just don't, I, um, uh, uh, Mark Twain, the, the, who was called the Lincoln of, uh, uh, Lincoln of Literature. I mean, I read everybody. Oh, yeah. So it's just not just poor writers. I mean, I just read every, all writers in, in grasp for their, their uh, talent and how they put words together and how they put metaphors together and the things of that sort in their lives and things like like that. And then I'll start writing. And a lot of people don't even understand that you can't just, you can't, if you want to be a horror writer, you can't just read writers of horror. Mm-hmm. You have to read other writers because they have an intellect or an eye for things maybe you can't see. Right. You know, they don't see. So... You want to read those kind of writers, and especially writers from the 1820s, 1880s. You know, they were great writers. Right. The Tale of Two, uh, the Tale of what's that? The Tale of Two Cities, and all—all all these are great writers, but they're not horror writers. But right. they're great writers. So you want to you want to read those, read their writing, so you when you write, you can bring that out, and that's what I try to do. Right, because writing is a craft, and uh, you know it spans all genres. Uh, you know whether you're a, a literary writer or a, a romance writer or whatever you are. Um, there is a certain craft there that you really have to master, and you have to learn from the greats. And that's kind of the base you have to build on in order to really, I think, soar and and uh, succeed in whatever genre that you're picking. And that's very smart. Exactly. And exactly, and a lot of, and I try to tell young writers or writers that's coming out, you can't just not, you cannot just read one genre if you want to be a great writer. You can't just read one genre because that's the genre genre you're in. You have to read all right, uh, all the literature from different writers all around the world, not just writers, not just African American writers. You can't be a great writer if you only if you're African American and you only read African American books. You can't, you'll never be a great writer. Yes, you may have some books out. You may, you know, get some books published, but you will never be a great writer, and that's my dream, to be a great writer. Hmm. It sounds like you're well on your way there. Now, uh, you, you know, you said Stephen King right off the bat uh, as one of your favorite writers and, and happens to be a horror writer. Now, what is it about him that gets you? What, what would you classify him as uh, really, how does, I guess, he touch you? It's, 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 it's his third eye. You know, when they say you have a third eye, uh, to, 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 to dabble into the third eye, into the mind of a, of a person and bring it out into a book that you would never know that this would happen. I mean, he's very talented. Mm-hmm. And like I, before, as a joke, but I feel when I grew up, I want to be like Stephen King. But he, 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 he takes the essence of just the world and just flips it on the other side that you would never know that this would actually happen. And if he, he's done that for years, and, and I mean, you have your Dean Koontz, and, and, and that's, you oh, know, yeah. those kind of, yeah. But, you know, Stephen King has, you know, he has grasped with the art of horror, the fictional eye. He's grasped the fictional eye. And I don't think anyone has ever done that before. But instead, if you talk about Alfred Hitchcock, which I love dearly, hmm. and, you know, I can mention him also, because of his uh, thriller suspense eye. See, all those are aspects. You have your supernatural horror and you have your suspense thriller. You know, and 
uh, Alfred Hitchcock in his suspense, that was the creative horror. Because, you know, you had your vampires, but as far as suspense, that people was thinking what would go on next, what was about to happen, and here you come with Stephen King and grasp all that and put it together. And that's why he's an exceptional writer, and I still want to tell anybody he's an exceptional writer. Oh, absolutely. I think he's definitely one of the, the greatest writers of our time. And uh, But it's funny you mention Alfred Hitchcock, you know, because I think when you're a writer, you also have to look at other art forms um, it, to inspire you because there is storytelling going on in all art forms, especially film. You know, you look at movies and how yeah. movies can also inspire you as a writer. And uh, the the narratives that Hitchcock could put together and weave and and just inspire you on a storytelling level was just absolutely amazing. So you know it, it's not just read all genres, but it's kind of appreciate all forms of expression. You know, do, do you do you get what I'm saying? I agree. I agree, Corey. I mm-hmm. agree. All Twilight Zone, things of that sort, the Outer Limits, every all those things are different aspects of a visual genre genre or a written genre. And mm-hmm. if you don't want to watch those, especially if you're in this field of horror, something is wrong because these things right here are ideas people created that no one ever thought about creating. So if you, if you, if you want to be one of, in a supernatural horror, right, you need to understand these different genres, visual or literature, if you're going to be a great writer. And I grew up on watching those and grew up on reading Stephen King and watching Alfred Hitchcock and things of that sort to get my, you know, to get my, my life source about writing. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned another great one there, The Twilight Zone, um, because, man, that is some of the best storytelling that you're going to find anywhere. Because the way oh. that they could craft a story and pull you in all kinds of different directions and you end up somewhere that you would never have expected to end up at the end of the story. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. That's that's perfect it, storytelling. It was brilliant. Yeah. Twilight Zone was brilliant. It was before its time. Mm-hmm. No one ever knew that that would go that far because no one, the man of of, of America wasn't wasn't uh, uh, wasn't ready for that type of suspense or, or thought that this kind of thing can happen. They weren't ready. They they weren't ready for. It. Right, right. And that's why I think it made such waves that it did, because it just came out of nowhere and just completely turned things on its head. And, uh, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. So, yeah, yeah. So you have to appreciate all kinds of art forms. And, and getting back to Stephen King, now, there have been a lot of movies made from his books. And oh. um, so, in general, um, how do you think people have done with Stephen King's books, you know, he's such a great writer in that he can get inside your head and he forms these mental pictures in your head. So you have this terror living in your brain that you visualize because of his mastery of storytelling and his mastery of the craft of writing. So overall, um, do you think people have done a good job adapting his works to the big screen? Yes, I do, because I think uh, Stephen King is uh, I say meticulous about his writing. And I think he has a lot to say. So a lot of his books that go to movies, he's sitting right there because he doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want the movie not 
to it may not hit the hit it right on the head about his book, but it's gonna be very close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's gonna be very close. It's gonna be very close because he's meticulous about his writing, and he's gonna make sure everything that he he wrote comes out. I mean, but he can't not all of it because it'll be three hour movie. But he he's there about his movie because he's watching because he wants if it's written down, he wants that idea to be to come out in that movie. And I, I, I really love him for that because he stands he stands on his writing. And in 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 society in the literary world a lot of things change when it goes to movies. And a lot of writers allow it to happen just so they get a their book turns into a movie, and that's a bad thing because it takes away from your art form. And you can't allow your art form to go down just for the dollars and cents. Because, you, yes, they made your book a movie, but that's not what you wrote, though. Yeah. That's not what you wrote. You know what I'm saying? Make the movie about what I wrote, you know, to make it. You know, so you understand. But a lot of, you know, a lot of authors allow that to happen. Stephen King is one that did not allow, allow that to happen. Yeah, I agree. Uh, a ton of his books have been adapted, and that's why I, a lot of his stuff is very complex, and a lot of character things going on, a lot of different subplots and stories happening all within the same novel. And that's why a lot of his books have been TV miniseries. You know, I, the first one I think of is It. Or even you know the stand, you know how they were they were hours and hours long because there's so much going on in those right. books, and to do them justice at all, you gotta expand them like that. Right, you have to, and and I, that's why I said I like that about Stephen King because if you're gonna make it, I want everything that I wrote to come out. I don't want you to, to cut nothing out. I don't want you to do that, so it has to be like that. And I and I and I love him for that. That's a good thing. Right. And, uh, you know, I asked you to, to pick out a horror movie to talk about tonight. And uh, the one that you told me to uh, to watch was Bag of Bones, which um, uh-huh. this is a very recent uh, TV miniseries of A&E, I believe. And right, right. Um, it's uh, one of his newer novels. I think it was, uh, well, actually 1998. So I guess it's been, what, 14 mm-hmm. years now. But uh, it, it's one of his more recent novels. And... Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, why did you pick uh, Bag of Bones? Is there something special about this for you? Well, I, like I said before, uh, Corey, you know, I, I, I'm a fanatic about Stephen King's thing. So, but Bag of Bones, just the title itself caught me. You know what I'm saying? Because the movie itself had nothing to do with a bag of bones. It had nothing to do with it, but it, at the end, it had to do with bones and and when I watched the movie, I, I I purchased the movie just because it was Stephen King. But when I when I dove into the movie and sat there, it was just wonderful how Stephen King brought out the aspect of supernatural, suspense, thriller, racism, mm-hmm. uh, 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 blues art form, the blues art form, the music, yeah. you know what I'm saying, and and, and a writer. Right. You know, Mike was a writer, you know what I'm saying, and I'm a writer. So that kind of caught my eye when I, you know, they even get the movie because Mike, Mike Noonan was a writer. That, that's something that Stephen King actually does a lot. You know, you think right. about the majority of his books, one of the main characters is always a writer. Writer, 
right. He's always a writer. I mean, and and, and it and, and that's what motivated me to watch it because I'm a writer and he does that all the time. And it, it was going through the uh, writer's struggle of uh, uh, that he couldn't write and, and his mind was blocked and all that. But then it, I like how he brought and he brings it out because you know I, I believe Stephen King lives out there like that in the woods in, in, in uh, is that New Hampshire or uh, Connecticut? Um, stuff yeah, out Maine, there. I think. Yeah. Thing. He lives out there that way, so he brings where he lives to the story, and like I said, he brings the uh, African-American twist to it with the blues singer, Sarah Tid- uh, Tidwell, um, and things like that. So Stephen King is more like Stephen King trying to bring the aspect of different cultures out in his books and movies, that, and that's what drove me to want to, get, to, want to watch it. Well, excellent, excellent. I, I haven't seen this before, but this is one, you know, like I told you that I'd been looking to watch for a long time, and I, I saw it was up on Netflix, Instant Watch Now, and uh, so I was really happy that I could I could see this, because I missed it on A&E when it, when it came out. But uh, I'd, I'd never read the book, so this is completely uh, the, the film version for me, because I haven't read this particular one of his yet. But uh, just for the sake of the listeners here, I'm going to give kind of a, a synopsis of what we see in this film. Uh, we have a writer, like you said, his name is Mike Noonan, and uh, he's, he's in really bad shape after his wife, Joe is struck by a car and dies. And right. uh, he finds out later that she had actually been pregnant at the time, which is, which is a big plot point because uh, he, he wasn't supposed to be able to have children. And uh, right. so it kind of brought up questions of, you know, was uh, was the baby actually his? You know, or, or was she seeing somebody else? So that's that's kind of explored here. But um, after her death, he has a lot of trouble writing, as uh, you started to say. And uh, so to try to relieve this, he kind of goes to their summer home out in the middle of rural Maine, um, where his wife Joe had spent a lot of time while he was kind of out doing book signings and tours and, and lectures and whatever. Um, she spent a lot of time in this summer home and, uh, he decides to go out there and try to find some peace and, you know, maybe start the creative juices flowing again. But when he gets out there, we see some really strange things beginning to happen. Um, he's haunted with all these questions about his wife. You know, was she, uh, was she cheating on him? I mean, those, those things are, are really messing with him and, um, as we go on, he, he starts to believe that she's actually trying to contact him from the spirit world. You know, we see some crazy things like the letters being rearranged on the refrigerator and the bell being rung on the, on the trophy's neck and uh, right. some really spooky things going on. And uh, we also find out that he's being haunted by the spirit of this blues singer who had died decades and decades earlier. I think, what, she was uh, big in like the 20s, wasn't that? Right. the 1920. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that was Sarah Tidwell. And um, so as things go on, he becomes involved with this local widow named Maddie and her daughter, and there's some really intense family drama going on there as far as custody because her husband is dead and her father-in-law wants custody of the girl, and it's a a big tangled mess there that's going on. So um, we have the supernatural activity, we have his wife's death that he's dealing with, and the drama with Maddie. And all of these things are weaved together and linked in a very interesting way, and Mike learns kind of the terrible truth of what's really going on here. 
and uh, it, it weaves a very, very interesting story. So um, have you read this novel? Actually, I've read it halfway. And I'm going to tell the truth, I didn't read it to the end. Mm-hmm. I read it halfway, and I watched the movie. And I do that a lot. Sometimes I, but I'm going to go back and read it, and I do that a lot. I read novels halfway, and then if it's in movies, I see it, and I finish reading it later on. Because I write all the time, so sometimes I do not finish books all the way. You know, I just read into, uh, you know, to the middle, and then I may watch the movie, or if it's not a movie, I'll pick up another book. That's my thing. I, I don't read books like people do all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. I read it halfway, put it up, and then I read another book. And then when I feel like it, I go back to the book I just read halfway and finish that one, then I go back to the book. Oh, I know exactly what you're saying. I have like I have like eight books kind of on rotation right now that I'm in, you know, certain <laughs> certain areas of at any given time. And I just go back and forth, you know, depending on my mood and kind of what I want to read at the time, you know, it just depends. And uh, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So th- I got that. So what did you think of this movie overall? I mean, it was long. It, it came in uh, over three hours um, overall. Um, so oh. what was uh, what was your take on this? Oh, man, it was a great movie. It wasn't long to me. I mean, I, I didn't, uh, when I watched it, I put it, if I had to go get something to drink, I put it on pause and couldn't wait to get back. I mean, I wanted to know what was going on and, and, and how he intertwined all the, uh, intertwined the plot in different characters and where they were coming from and the reason why and what they did. So when, at the end, I understood when I found out exactly why his wife was trying to to talk to him, not because trying to talk to him in the sense that um, from the other side because she missed him and loved him, so she was trying to talk to him because to explain to him the reason why she was there all the time. She was trying to protect him. Yes. She didn't want him to, you know, she didn't want the baby to be born, you know, and because she knew what was going to happen if the baby was born and she felt and she was trying to protect him and herself if she had to live, you know, that so he wouldn't go through it because she knew he was going to go through it because she had researched that. She had researched that he was going to kill their daughter if they had a daughter. Right. He was going to because that was going to happen to the men that did that to Sarah Kidwell. Right. You know, so I, I, I really enjoyed it, you know, the, the whole essence of the whole movie, I really enjoyed the plot and how it ended and how he took the girl at the end and was going to raise as his own and all that. I, I, I really enjoyed that. I love how just you're going through this movie and there are so many subplots going on, so many storylines that um, it's it's almost like I can't wait to find out how these all connect. Because you know they're all going to connect. Everything's going to come together at some point. But really, I was going through, and I had no idea how you're going to link Sarah Tidwell, how you're going to link Maddie and her daughter, and, you know, kind of the evil stepfather that we see, and Mike Noonan's story. Like, how is all this going to come together? And it's revealed bit by bit. And there are some really horrible things that went on in the past. And, and like you said earlier, you know, there are a lot of racial issues explored here, um, which is, um, you know, really, uh, there was a lot to say in this movie as well. So uh, I, I thought just the reveal at the end, you know, a lot of reveals going on, but uh, some of these big ones at the end, uh, I didn't see coming. 
And uh, right. I thought they were brilliantly weaved together. Exactly. And people don't understand. And, and it's a culture shock to understand, which did happen in the 20s, 1920s, that there were African-American blues singers that did go on that circuit and hit places like Maine. But, you know, you wouldn't know it unless you read books. So that's why I say Stephen King was, he, he researched and, and put things together because that did happen. But we wouldn't know that that happened in 1920. No, you would never think that Sarah Tidwell would be at the uh, county fair in Maine. You would, you would never think that. But those kind of things happen. But what people understand, the whole, the, the, the really great part about that was the uh, um, knock once for yes, two for no. Yeah. In the See that was that was the that was the suspense that was the thrill in Stephen King's bag of bones. He said it all the time: not once for yes or do something for no. You see, what I'm saying, and that mm-hmm. that 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 right there is a, a in, in writing. That's a you have to have things like that. Right. That catch if you want to if and if people really want to read or even when it's made a movie, you have to look and at things like that. And that was a great. Great thing Stephen King did in, in Bag of Bones when he said knock was for yes and two for no. And he did that through the movie, and, and a lot of people didn't capture that. And that was the big point for that movie right there, those simple words. And sometimes it's just those simple words in writing that, that captures the reader. Simple words, not nothing extravagant. Simple words and simple things when you're talking about movies. That was, that's what captures people that really dives into a movie of a horror novelist or any kind of novelist, you have to watch for those things. Right, right. Now, I'm glad you said that because Stephen King, another thing that he does so well, like you just said, is that uh, he uses very simple language and he doesn't try to impress you with his large vocabulary and, and fancy words and everything. He really writes for the common man. and But he still can take this really easy to read text and just weave so many complex and beautiful ideas into it. Right. And, and uh, you just uh, gave a, a great example of one of the things that he does. But uh, I was literally shocked, uh, go, you know, going back to the, the racial thing going on here. I was shocked uh, whenever these things were revealed at the end, how bad that it got. I mean, the the, uh, the people in Maine, the white people in Maine, uh, this, well, the certain group of people in Maine, were so um, so outraged that a black singer could come to the fair, and she was so famous. She was a very famous singer, and she was so successful and a very very beautiful singer, and they were so outraged with this that they did some horrible horrible things. And uh, right. do you think, you know, looking looking back at the 20s, do you think that was completely realistic as far as how this played out? Did things like this, do you think, actually happen? Yes, it did. I mean, and, and if you read the books, it did happen. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King, and I applaud him for bringing that out, it did happen. It did happen. And and, and it happened before then, and it happened in the 1920s. And, and I, like I said before, I applaud Stephen King to even bring that out because it was it was horrendous. It was bad, but it happened, and no one said anything like it always happens. No one says anything, but now you have this spirit here, Sarah Tidwell did not forget, 
And that one, and I, 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 I must say the, uh, the, what you say, the photography or the, 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 the people that do the scenes and that tree that she was buried by looked just like a woman. Oh yeah, it was, it was, it was wonderful. That it looks like a woman. You see, what I'm saying and that's Stephen King guy. He, if you wasn't paying no attention, you would just think it was a tree. Mm-hmm. But it looked like a woman. Oh. It looked just like a woman. But that's Stephen King, and and like I said before, I applaud him bringing that out because it did happen, and he had no shame to to talk about it or, or put it out that this thing happened in the 20s to African American blues singer this particular woman Sarah Tid- Tidwell. And she had a daughter. And the evil that they would do to the woman's daughter, mm. you know, and it was evil back there. That was a bad thing. And he brought that out in Bag of Bones. And I, and I really commend him about that. Yeah. Now, it was interesting um, right before Sarah uh, died, because she ultimately dies from all these terrible things that uh, they do to her. But right before she dies, she lays upon them a curse. And uh, this this is the curse that, you know, is kind of the whole backbone of, of what's really going on in this whole movie and why things play out the way that they do. But uh, what do you think he was saying there? What, what subtext? Um, because in the 20s, um, you know, was he saying that there was a certain uh, population that uh, they were that superstitious and uh, were kind of involved in, I don't know if it was like a voodoo or a cult thing, or maybe she was, uh, you know, from the Deep South, maybe Louisiana, something like that, where, you know, there was a lot of superstitious activity going on. How did you, how did you take that, that she just often uttered a curse against well, them? Well, I took it as, you know, when, some, when people like that are, are violated and, and hurt in that way, I, they not necessarily have to be from the South or any, you know, cultural Southern state or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's just the, she could have, she could have cursed them to die. She could have cursed them. It wasn't about her. It wasn't about her. They, she really didn't care about, if you go in the scene, do what you want with me, but leave my baby alone. She only cursed them because she killed, they killed her baby. Not because they did what they did to her. It was about her daughter that they did. So she did not curse them to die. She cursed their 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 daughters for you will be you will kill your do- own daughter since you killed mine. But she could have been from a southern state, but not necessarily. It's just at that time when you're when you see that kind of evil done to your child, the only thing that you can do is say that. You know, uh-huh. that's all you can do that I'm going to curse you for doing that to my child, but she could have been from some southern state uh, to have that, but not necessarily. It's just at that point in time, seeing her daughter dying, that's what she's going to say. That was maybe just her her gut reaction then to right. to seeing all that. To see all that, so she didn't say that they were going to die. They said right. she said I'm going to kill your daughters. I'm not going to kill you. That's too easy for you for me to curse you. So you can die. Well, I'm gonna make sure you live long time. But when you have a daughter, she will do the same thing to your daughter. It was all about her daughter, not about her. Hmm. That's that's really interesting, and I, I'm uh, I'm glad I'm talking about this here with you, man, because you're uh, you're kind of giving me a, a different perspective on it. As far as I, I I guess I took the curse as more of a serious thing 
than it might have been. Because I was I was questioning that a little bit, you know, saying, well, was she in a cult? Was she in, you know, like I said, voodoo or something like that? But it just might have been a dying kind of, uh, you know, kind of thing that she did that uh, wasn't necessarily that she was um, involved in something like that. But that was just her dying reaction. So power a mother has. Yeah. Power a mother has. A mother has a lot of power. And and a lot of people understand a mother has a lot of power when the child comes from their body. They have a lot of power. So, and that was the, I believe, was the, the gist of her saying that uh, Stephen King put that in there because a mother's love for their child. And they stand there and see their child being killed. You know, and she sees the killers. All she can do is say that to them. Right. Not knowing it may not come true, but that's all she can do because that's the power of a mother. And I think Stephen King put that not as a cult or demographic thing. It was just a mother saying that you killed my daughter. So now I, your daughters will be you by the hands of you. You will kill your own daughter because I'm seeing you kill my daughter. You know, a mother's power is very powerful. And we know that today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's a great point. We, we know that today. A mother has a lot of power over their children. Yeah. Because you come from the mother, the mother. So that's how it was, I believe, that he did it. I don't think it was because he never iterated that where she came from, you know, or what uh, city she came from or things like that. Was she from the South or was she from North Carolina or Louisiana? It was just a mother seeing her daughter killed. That's all she can do. And know that she had, she couldn't do anything to save her daughter, so she said, oh, you're going to kill your daughter like you killed mine. Mm. You yeah. know, and sometimes that, that sticks with a person. It's going to haunt them. When you say things like that, you don't have to be in voodoo, but when you say things like that, when you know they did wrong, evil haunts you. And that's it. That That evil haunted their bloodlines. Uh, you know, from from there on out, and it really did. So something stuck there, and right. uh, it stuck in her head. Because if you look at the movie when she said it, and how she raised up and said it to all of them, and and, and, the, and the camera went to every last one of their faces, they saw the anger in the in the, in the pain in her eyes. They saw, mm-hmm. and you know that they say the eyes out of portal portal to the soul, right. They saw that. They saw that pain and that that anger she had for them for killing her daughter. So it's it's sucked down in their soul, and Absolutely. that's what they did. Absolutely. Now, when we look at technical aspects to this, you know, we have some big actors in this movie and a lot of I, I think uh, really strong acting here. And first and foremost, we have Pierce Brosnan. I mean, a, a huge, huge name as uh, the main character, Mike Noonan. So, how did you think? Pierce performed in this role. You know, this is James Bond, you know, of, of you know, the past couple decades here. And, uh, you know, he's he's done a lot of big, big movies. How did you think he, he did in this one? Oh, Pierce Brosnan did wonderful. I mean, I've always liked Pierce Brosnan. And there's uh, James Bond, everything. I've always liked his, his acting ability. So that was a good, that, it, the, the cast was great. It was a, he, he, made, he played the part. He did play the part of uh, of Mike Lewis. 
he did play the part. He played the part of a writer. He played the part of a, uh, as a husband and as a distraught husband after his wife died four years, even four years later. He played a great role, and he played a role, and I loved him because they tried to uh, undermine the writer in the movie. And when he started dealing with Joe, uh, I believe it was Joe and the daughter, about the lawyer and that, and they thought that he was just a pushover that, you know, and he had been around a long time. So he had dealt with lawyers. He had dealt with people. So Pierce Brosnan, Brosnan played a great role in that movie. I, I don't think anyone else could have did that. I, I don't think I would have wanted to see anybody else but him. I agree. He has such a strong presence, and he's such a just a great actor. You know, even even in those little parts in this movie when he was going a little bit crazy. You know, he had those times where he, he would just do those kind of kind of strange little outbursts of laughter. You know, and, mm-hmm. and because he didn't really understand there were all these supernatural things going on around him. So obviously he's kind of losing his mind a little bit and going a little bit crazy sometimes. And Pierce Brosnan isn't the kind of, of actor that you see being a crazy guy. You know, you see him very strong and very in control and, and very smooth. But uh, he was able to kind of, I think, almost go outside of his comfort zone in this a little bit. Right. I mean, when you have actors, when you when you're in a movie that Stephen King um, writes, and that they, uh, you know, and they make a movie, you have to understand, you know, you have to change your whole game plan because this is a whole different story storyline now. You have to come out of your come out of your comfort zone and and do your thing. And he knew that it was Stephen. It's a movie by Stephen, written by Stephen King. So you have to you have to have a little craziness and you have to come out of your comfort zone on other things you used to do. Oh, that's right. That's right. All bets are off with Stephen King. I mean, you just got to, you, man, be ready to do whatever, you know, to uh, to accommodate the characters that uh, King's going to come up with. And, uh, yeah, Brosnan, this is just a testament to his, his great acting ability. And uh, I, was, I was really pleased with that. And uh, we also have, now, now let's talk about Sarah Tidwell. You know, this was, uh, this is a girl, I, I've never heard of this actress before, but her name is um, Anika Noni Rose. And, right, Anika- um yeah, I mean, do you do you know anything about her previous to this, or is this your first? I, no, no, I, I I've listened to a little of her music, but I, I didn't know she was in it until I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. I did not know she was she was singing Sarah Tidwell. You know, Sarah Tidwell's music was lost. A lot of her music was lost back in the day in nineteen twenty. So they had to find her music, you know, and uh, uh, lost. Uh, you know, she did a, a, the, the soundtrack and the music for it. She did a a real good job. Yeah, I, I think you're right, man. I mean, she pulled it off so well. She did all the nuances of, I think, a, a singer from that period in time. You know, it's it's got to be tough to really emulate an African-American singer in the 1920s and to pull off the kind of things that a, a star would do in that decade because we're so removed from that. Now we're almost 100 years away from that. And uh, that that. It would have been so hard to do, and she did it well. Exactly, and I and I'm quite sure Mr. King had something to do with that. Yeah, and uh, I'm quite sure he was listening to Sarah Tidwell's music. And I'm matter of fact, I'm about to buy I'm about to buy the music from the movie. But um, Rose is singing it, but not Sarah Tidwell because yeah. that's hard to find. But I'm I'm a buy for um, the CD of her singing the soundtrack from the movie. And um, Stephen King had to have something to do with that. He had to be listening to some old Sarah Tidwell to even, even bring her up. So, see, that's what I'm saying. 
that kind of writer inspires me because you listen to everything. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Didn't make this up. Sarah Tidwell was a live person. She was a famous blues singer. She was. So you must have listened to her. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You must have listened to her. And you put her in the movie. You see? So that's a good thing. That is really, really great. And it, it, again, like you said, it shows how diverse King is in his tastes and everything. Because Stephen King, this is the same guy who uh, was actually really close with Anthrax and listening to the band Anthrax, you know, the, the metal band of the 80s and, um, mm-hmm. and stuff. And so he goes from, you know, like speed metal, thrash metal to like 1920s blues. And, right. you know, who is that diverse? That's fantastic, I think. It is. Yeah. And Stephen King is your man because he must understand you must listen to everything. Right. You must listen to everything, all cultures, all cultures, aspects of music, and writing also. You, if you're going to live, if you're going to uh, go through all these years being a great writer, you have to listen and read all kind of different writers and listen to all kind of different music. You can't just listen to the music that you, you were raised on. You have to listen to other music. And I try to teach my children the same thing. You can't just listen to African American music. Children, mm-hmm. there's other music out here. You know what I'm saying? You can't. You can't. You have to. My father, before he passed, he said you got to. You got to be cultured, son. You have to be cultured. Mm-hmm. Cultured means you have to listen to all music, not just our music. You have to listen to all music. You have to read all books, not just our books written by African Americans. You have to read all books if you're going to be cultured in this world. Right. Right. And uh, King. Again, you know, shows his mastery of, uh, you know, just being so diverse and, and being able to uh, pull from all of these influences, no matter how diverse they are, and uh, to be able to write some, some great, great fiction and to turn it into a movie. And uh, I, I think I'm going to ask you kind of to rate this, I guess, um, two different ways. Now, as a standalone movie, Bag of Bones, and, um, you know, would you recommend this to the modern horror fan? Um, where would you rate this, I guess, on 1 to 10 uh, as a horror movie? I would rate it as a 10, and I would tell everybody, and I have told a lot of my colleagues and things that friends to, to, to watch it. It's a great movie. I mean, it brings everything out, because when I, when I started watching it, and then when, you know, just, you know, a basic horror movie, suspense, supernatural, and then he brought Sarah Tidwell out, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Okay, Stephen. All right. I'm glad I'm watching this. That's a good thing. So I rated a ten. I mean, everyone should see Bag of Bones. It, it, it's a great, it's a great story. It has a great plot. It has a great conclusion. You know, it has um, climaxes and all that stuff that movies and books should have. So I, I rated a ten. I wouldn't give it anything less than a ten. For me, I've, I've watched horror movies every day, and uh, a ton of them. And um, as far as the horror goes here. Um, first of all, this is a very long movie, you know, like I said before, over three hours when you take both parts into account. And so it's really long and there is a lot of drama, a lot of exposition, uh, a lot of things going on here that is non horror. So I think for a modern horror fan, somebody that's, uh, it's watching nowadays, they might be turned off by some of the drama, some of the fantastic things happening, because especially at the end, we see you know, a lot of kind of fantasy things happening with all the supernatural elements. And, um, you know, there's, there's no real gore 
There, there's not a lot of blood or anything like that. Um, it's more psychological, supernatural, and there are a lot of scary parts, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, for, for horror fans that are brought up on a more uh, visceral level, uh, you know, they're, they're used to seeing, you know, a lot of stabs, a lot of ripping bodies apart and things like that on the screen. This might seem a little bit tame. And so I'm, I'm still going to rate this favorably. I'm going to give it actually a 7 out of 10 just as a standalone uh, movie. Um, because I, I did still really enjoy it. But like I said, it is really long and some people might not be able to sit through, you know, three plus hours. You know, people are used to 90 minutes tops. We have to define when we talk about horror. I really don't want to watch or I don't write horror. I write horror, but I don't write it like that. I, I, I want, in the, and with Stephen King, it was horror and it was supernatural, but it had its little drama. But then he cut off and made it supernatural horror. And mm-hmm. then he went back to a little drama. And then he went back to a little horror supernatural. Then he went back. But I, I, don't, I don't think blood and gore, in my opinion, is horror. Yeah. I mean, because you can get so tired of so much gore. You know, gore is not horror to me. I mean, that's just blood and gore. I mean, that's not horror. Horror is a, in my mind, is a whole different aspect. You know, you have your blood and gore, I, I don't want to see it all through the movie. I mean, it has no horror aspect. It's just, okay, I know you're going to get his head cut off. Yeah. Okay, I know you're going to get stabbed. I mean, yeah, but it has to have some kind of essence and some plot. Horror still has to have some kind of essence and some kind of plot, you know, and some dialogue and, and, to, and to walk into the horror, not just every time you look at this horror. If everybody's something happening all the time, it's just gore. There's no horror. And horror has a base. Horror does have a base. It has a base. It can't just be every time you you watching or you reading something is happening. It has to have a storyline. Something has to be calm before the horror. Like people say, calm before the storm. It has to be some calm before the storm. It can't just be storm all the way. It's just a storm movie. Right. You have no... No, no drama, no bass, no plot, no anything. And I, I really don't like to watch those kind of movies when they say this is a horror because I get tired and I turn it off because all they're doing is cutting somebody up. I mean, but it's no plot. No, you're What's exactly going? right. I mean, it has to get inside of your head first and foremost at some point and it has to capture you that way. And whether it has a lot of blood or not, it's got to frighten you on a, on a deeper level than just visuals. Exactly. It has to come. Something has to come about. And they say, ooh, that scared me. That's horror. Okay, but it, it drove you to that point. It just didn't start horror all the way through the movie. You're just sitting there just watching people, and it has, you, you don't know the plot. What was the reason why? What happened? What's going on? What's, what happened? I mean, did somebody talk? No one talks. There's no dialogue. There's no plot. There's, no, there's nothing but just horror. Exactly. Exactly. Now, um, I told you I was going to have you rate this two ways, and that was the first one on its kind of standalone merits. But uh, when we look specifically at Stephen King movies, um, where do you put this? And, you know, you can think about movies like we've already mentioned, like It and The Stand, but we also have like Pet Cemetery, Salem's Lot, Carrie. Uh, the list can go on and on. So as far as Stephen King's catalog of movies that have been adapted from his books, where do you think 
this stands um, as far as a rating goes? Again, like a one to ten thing. Well, for Vagabond, I rated as far as all. If I combine all of Stephen King's movies, I probably would rate it six because I think the the, the greatest movie book or movie he has that book that's been turned into a movie, adapted to a movie, was it. And that's always been my favorite. You know, it has always been my favorite. You know, so I would, I would rate it a six. I mean, Bag of Bones, there's a lot of other ones out there, Stan, Pet Cemetery. A lot, a lot of those are better than uh, Bag of Bones, I, I must say. So I will rate it a six. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come in close to that. I'm going to say a five um, because there's also like The Shining, you know, which was an awesome, awesome movie. And uh, I mentioned Salem's Lot, which was spectacular, even though, you know, it was a vampire movie made for TV and they did it so well. That was Toby Hooper that did that. And uh, so and, uh, you know, it man, it, you know, whenever I saw that, I'd I'd read the book and then I saw the movie and it was uh, I think I was in like middle school or high school when I saw it. And it totally messed with me, you know, it was a clown. It was the clown. Exactly. Yeah. So I I can never look at clowns the same again after I saw that. And uh, so, yeah, that's uh, there have been a lot out there that have really affected me a lot more than this. But it's not it's not taken away from this movie. I mean, I do think that people should see this. And again, it's it's widely available, especially so many people are on Netflix and you can see it on Netflix instant streaming. And uh, so it's widely available. But uh, I think you have to stick it out. And that's the thing I think we should um, really uh, emphasize here is saying it's a three plus hour thing divided up into two like hour and a half segments. And uh, you should stick it out and give it a chance. And uh, I think you'll be happy with it. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. I mean, you should stick it out and not just look for the base, the, the, the basic uh, uh, killer, kill, 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 and look at the plot because the horror suspense is coming. So you have to just be patient. It's coming and look how it started and, and, and the reason why and and uh, the wife was killed and the reason why the you 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 have to look at that when you saw the birth control. I mean uh, the pregnancy test on the on the street and you never knew why. Yeah. It was they showed that and, and but the horror is coming. When the phone rung or looking under his bed and he see his wife being, I mean, all this is horror, but you have to be patient to, so you can see the horror. You have to be patient, not just you think it's just going to jump out at you right then and there time you push play. Right, right, absolutely. So, Dino, thank you for suggesting this uh, to watch this week because, man, I, I was uh, really happy that uh, I'd finally give this a shot, and uh, it was it was a great ride. So thank you again for bringing this up, man. Oh, no problem, Corey. No problem. So again, uh, Blood Plantation. It's your newest uh, your newest novel, and that is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle. Is that correct? You can get it both ways. Correct. Yes, both ways in the Amazon.com, Amazon UK, Amazon all over the world. Awesome. And I'll put all these links up in the show notes as far as, uh, you know, how they can get your book and also learn more about you because you're a really interesting guy. You have a blog and you put up some some great things, a lot of writing and a lot of opinion. And uh, I really appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, you can find out more about Dino 
And uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you, man, for hanging out with me tonight and, you know, taking so much of your time to talk about your work and to talk about a, a really fun movie here tonight, man. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Corey, and you have a good one, man. Awesome. You too. Let's do this again. All right. Soon, soon. My next book coming out. I'm going to make sure we talk about it. We will. Or we will. Good night, man. All right. Good night. Do you know the story of Madeline O'Malley? She was the woman that died here in the hotel. She hung herself after her fiancé stood her up on their wedding day. And ever since then, people have reported seeing the ghost of Madeline O'Malley roaming the hallways waiting for her lover. Some say she's even looking to take up a new one. This is our last weekend open, so we've got to find some proof that Madeline O'Malley really exists before this place closes down. I have my microphone so we can make do with EVP investigations. Yes, I'd like a room for the night. Since the hotel is practically empty, we might have a good chance of making some real contact. What was that? Did you hear that? Hang on. You want to communicate with the spirits in this hotel? I can help you do that. What do they want? To live. You mustn't go down into the basement. Under a blanket of blue Just you and us beneath the stars Well, I'm real happy I'm sitting here right now with a good friend, fellow podcaster here on the Horror Palace Network. I want to welcome for his very first appearance on the electric chair, my friend and yours, Terror Tovey. Welcome. It is great to be here, Midnight Corey. Dude, I have uh, I've missed you guys. I've missed you in particular. I haven't talked to you in forever, it seems like. I mean, we would like from week to week when we're talking for three or four hours at a time, and then I go for a month where I haven't I haven't talked to you. Seems like a long time, so it's it's great to be back, and thank you so much for inviting me. Well, thank you for for taking your time. You're you're doing great work, Horror Metropolis, man. Blew me away. First episode blew me away because it's like you never missed a beat. You know, you, you guys just went straight from weekly horror to to Horror Metropolis, and it's like the same greatness, the same chemistry between yeah. everyone there. So yeah, we we were all surprised at the end when we finished recording the first episode. I wasn't on two, uh, but when we finished recording the first one, it was like. Well, okay. I guess it's just going to be like that, you know. Like, okay, no surprises here. You know, it, it's, uh, it's a you know, the dynamics changes a little bit, like losing you and getting Jay and his and the new kind of format, which I I think we're going to have to kind of iron out. There's some there's some times where we're trying to keep the discussion within certain uh, th- you know like themes or categories is going to be kind of difficult. So we'll kind of see where that goes. Like like weekly, it's going to be a it's going to be a, a work in progress and kind of evolve into its own thing. But as far as like, 
yeah, me and Doc and and Bill Shetty and Jay the Dead. It's uh, it's like old times. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and and I think it's really important. You know, we learned I think some great lessons on the Weekly Horror Podcast. Uh, you know, it was it was really getting, um, you know, kind of there were no time constraints. We just kind of <laughs> kept the the conversation going and going and going whatever we thought of we just kind of rolled with but jay of the dead i really admire him because he's far more disciplined uh that way than i was i mean i'm just kind of let's let's just roll and see what happens but jay kind of keeps <laughs> things under control which is really important that we saw there towards the end because that's what was really killing us there at the end of this yeah and, and we all it seems like we all have the we all have the passion just be like no don't cut this is great discussion and we love talking to each other but just completely uh you know unreined in any way and so but yeah i i do have to say like the weekly horror movie podcast ending and starting this it came at a great time because i i entered into finals uh at the end of my this uh semester which was a real beast and so it came it, it was perfect you know, like, and every two weeks it comes around just enough that I'm like excited for it. And it's not, it got to be, it got to be so, uh, time consuming, you know, and I just, I can't, I couldn't do that in my life. So it's been nice. I think, I think it worked out well for everybody. Exactly. It was perfect for everyone. The timing was great. Yeah. And the electric chair is turning into a phenomenal and unique, you know, podcast. So congratulations there. Well, thanks. Thanks. I strive for, uh, you know, originality and, you know, kind of something different every week. And uh, it is so and this is why it, it's so great to have you on the show. Uh, I really value your unique take on horror and uh, just your your personality, man. You're, you're really easy to talk to. You're very cool. And uh, but I really like talking horror with you, which is why I'm so Likewise. excited. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, but uh, I, I saw this movie I wanted to review. And to be honest, the first person I thought of who I wanted to review this with would have been you, because this is the kind of movie that I thought would be right up your alley. It's a supernatural horror movie, um, and it's uh, pretty much brand new. You know, it just came out on DVD and Blu-ray not long ago. Um, But this is The Innkeepers from 2011. Um, And uh, so before I had uh, asked you to review this, had you had you seen it? No, absolutely not. I hadn't even heard of it, which shows you how, really? uh, yeah, it shows you how like head in the sand I was with, uh, with schoolwork and stuff. I just, I was like, okay. And I, I it was down at my uh, local red box. So I picked it up this afternoon and just barely finished watching it. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. This is one, um, for me, uh, I hadn't read any reviews of this. Like I, I came into watching this movie just completely on a blank slate, except that I knew that it was Ty West directing it. And so if it's Ty West, I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, do you know anything about Ty West? Anything he's done? That's the funny thing is that after I watched it, I, I went just like you. I went in. I was like, all I know about this is that Midnight Corey said we were going to review it. That's the only <laughs> thing I knew about the movie. So that's, it, that's fun to go in and not know what to expect. Either be blown away or completely disappointed on your own terms, you know, without any preconditioning. So uh, I did just that. And I got it and I watched it. And then afterwards, I went on to IMDb and I went into Wikipedia and I read up a little bit. I'm like, oh, Ty West, he directed uh, The House of the Devil, which I really, really liked. Uh, um, and I think I'm going to suggest for an up- upcoming episode of, um, of Horror Metropolis. But uh, yeah, I really dug that movie. And so, but, but comparing this now, I, I don't feel like they were the same. I mean, obviously, you know, The House of the Devil was like a very stylized 80s 
I mean, throwback in the sense of like a genuine throwback where like you could the average person would watch this and go, yeah, that was filmed in 1984. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and this is not that. And it didn't even have the same style, not the same cinematography. It's like <clears throat> I felt like and maybe maybe you'll disagree, but I felt like, yeah, these two those two movies and I'm not familiar with much of his other work, but I saw that after after I saw The Innkeeper. So I, I didn't go in because that really would have tainted me mm. uh, going into this watching this movie. I would have expected. I would expected uh, something similar or something so super stylized uh, in, in a different way, but anyway, uh, I, I didn't know that till after. Yeah, I know what you mean um, because again, uh, the only uh, movie that I've seen of his was House of the Devil, and uh, there was another one that I saw, and I'm trying to think. I think it was The Roost, I think it's called, and I saw like half of it, and I kept getting interrupted. And it's one of those movies, you know, that you start and then you get interrupted and you try to start it up again, and then something else happens, and then it's just you kind of leave it. And it's not that it was a bad movie. I don't even remember a lot about it at this point because it was a couple years ago I, I tried to watch it. Um, but I kind of left it there, you know, because other things just kept happening and then it just, you know, it's it's still sitting there. I got to see it. But um, yeah, so I'm like you. I, I was coming in and I guess I expected his shtick to be the, the throwback thing, the grainy film. You know, you're, you're going back and kind of recreating the, the 80s horror feel and look and atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, which this had, I, I think, in terms of uh, the slow burn and pacing, um, yeah. you know, kind of the character development. Um, it, there was still there's still a certain style to this that I really appreciated. Um, he is a good filmmaker uh, on, a, True. on a technical level. And it's especially seen in this as, as opposed to House of the Devil, even because uh, just his mastery over blocking and uh, doing creative shots. Yep. And uh, really, really using a lot of depth of field and rack focusing, things like that, that uh, I really, really like. Um, he, he's a master of. And so visually, it's a perfect, this is like a perfect visual film. He did totally. It great. Yeah. Totally. And I, I couldn't agree more. And when I was watching this, I was like, I hadn't seen this before. You know, what kind of threw me off was uh, the copy I had. I don't know where Redbox gets it. It was packaged. And so you kind of have to watch the trailers oh, uh, before before the movie and you can skip through them but you but you you know you you catch a little bit of them and you see the quality of films that are being shown in front of it and it can, I hate to say that that almost tips you off to what you're about to see or or where uh, where the market has placed this film huh. you know, even, even if it's not the same quality even if you know like these other ones looked really hokey you know story and acting and and technically look really kind of cheesy and so i was like well is that what this is going to be and then i watched it and technically i was like wow this is a i i even enjoyed the acting i liked the dialogue a little bit like um but but especially the like a lot of like cool interior tracking shots and some boom shots and uh yeah technically it was it it looked really really great i enjoyed watching the film i was like somebody knows what they're doing oh yeah you know and they're and they're telling the story well uh, but that's uh, that's not where it ends. I mean, there's some other positives and stuff for me, but but uh, I will I'd have to agree with you that technically it was it was it was the colors and everything about it was pretty cool to watch makeup all that. Yeah. Well, let's give it before we get too much into you know analyzing oh, yeah. the movie. Oh, let's shoot. let's give kind of a, a, a synopsis here, and I'll I'll just run through it because there's not a whole lot and there's some some reveals and stuff, and I'm not going to give it away. I don't spoil stuff. So, um, you know, the innkeepers. It's about a couple innkeepers, uh, at least a couple 20-somethings that work in this, in this uh, it's almost a bed and breakfast sort of, uh, kind of kind of place in New England, and it's on the verge of being shut down. It's literally within its last week of operation, 
And so they're kind of there. They're going through the motions. There's literally one or two guests in the whole, in the whole thing. And it's just this big old house. And it's called the Yankee Peddler, which I guess really exists somewhere. Um, as I was reading about this, so I guess there's like a real historical hmm. thing about this, but I didn't, I didn't really read up on that. But uh, so these uh, these two, it's a male and a female. It's uh, Claire and Luke, and um, Luke and uh, Luke especially is really into kind of capturing paranormal uh, things going on and the unexplained. And there's a whole history behind this inn that they are in. That there's there's supposedly this ghost, the ghost of Madeline O'Malley. And she, decades and decades earlier, was to be married, and her fiancé left her hanging at the altar, just didn't show up. And so she was so distraught, she came to this hotel where they had a room rented, and uh, she hung herself. And so now her ghost supposedly haunts the hotel. And so he was kind of playing on that, and he is supposedly shot some footage of weird things happening and he has them up on his website and we get into that a little bit and and so uh he's all into it and he just needs the proof he needs the proof and he kind of has sarah into the whole thing as well and you're kind of questioning how much they really believe of this whole legend but they're really trying to to capture something either a video or the evp thing with the audio recorders Mm -hmm. so they're really into that. Um, one of the guests in the hotel this particular night that we're seeing um, is kind of this washed-up actress turned, uh, like, new-age healer um, who uh, Sarah recognizes, and she's kind of starstruck over. Uh, but this lady plays a huge part in how things pan out. Sarah eventually thinks that she's uh, hearing and seeing certain things and uh, kind of convinces uh, Luke to kind of get in on it and there are more and more creepy things that happens and this old guy comes and checks in and what happens with him it it gets downright creepy it goes from like a quirky kind of uh, studying these two interesting characters that are running the inn to a full-out horror i mean there's a there's just a gradual transition uh by the end of the movie things are really bad (laughs) like really bad it like does a total 180 from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to stop there. Uh, not going to give too much more away because there, there's a lot of crazy things that happen. Um, so um, it's divided into chapters. It's kind of stylized that way. You know, we, we're kind of getting the old old uh, New England kind of feel to this. And do you remember, did they say where this was geographically? Yeah, you said New England. I had no idea. <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't catch a, a location at all. Hmm. Maybe I just assumed, you know. Yeah. Oh, no, they did. They did. When they were talking about the actress, they said that she was going to a convention somewhere, and I, I didn't recognize the names. So it's probably you, – pro- you may have recognized them because you're of that area. That those The, the towns they, they spit out didn't mean much to me. So, yeah. Um, But, yeah, it has that feel. It has that old that kind of colonial um, house, you know. Yeah. colonial boarding house it has it has three floors and a bunch of rooms like it's kind of a big place yeah yeah that they're is. at yeah very cool location um so um going into the beginning of this movie uh we have our, our two main characters like i said it starts off kind of quirky and you got a lot of kind of clever dialogue going on between them so uh, flat off what did you think of these two characters of, of sarah and luke 
Well, yeah, Claire the, uh, and Luke, I'm sorry. Sarah Paxton plays Claire. Yeah, yeah. Claire and Luke. I liked them. I mean, I, I, I wasn't expecting like really great characters out of a horror movie, uh, but they surprised me in terms of like the depth and the, and the uh, camaraderie and like the, the interplay that they had one with another. They'd have, you know, they'd scare each other and, you know, try and ring the bell before the other person could get to it. Like little, I mean, they had little, there's little nuances to their relationship that were kind of interesting. And you thought, you get the feeling, of course, that, uh, Luke might be interested in Claire and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it was kind of fun. The one thing that, that uh, hearing you give the synopsis, I, I was confused by. I, it took me a while to sort out who these two characters were in relationship to this, the Yankee Peddler in. Because at the beginning, when they start talking about oh, the camera and the EVP and this equipment and, and this place is shutting down, I'm like, oh, are they – I didn't immediately go towards these are just two employees that happen to be, uh, you know – uh, ghost aficionados or something like that didn't come to my mind. I was like, oh, maybe they're here kind of working in the place, uh, taking care of it while it closes down. And they're like ghost hunters, you know, like that's their job. Like they're uh, making a show. I didn't, I didn't get that. These were just, it, it just seemed too, too much to, to, uh, to assume that like, oh, here's two employees that work at a haunted hotel and they happen to be trying to start this career in, in, but that's what it was. Um, so it was. It was a little. It was. Uh, it wasn't super clear to me at the beginning, and maybe it was just a little too much to ask at, at the very beginning for me. Um, but I liked the characters. Yeah, I thought they were. I thought they were playful. I thought um, they were acted pretty well. Like I, they were believable. I wasn't. I wasn't sitting back going, "That's a delivered line." They. They really felt pretty natural, and the dialogue was that they had to deliver was uh, was pretty good. So I was. I was pleased with watching them kind of. But I'm like, yeah, but this is not what the movie's about. So yeah. Yeah. And it definitely has something to do. It definitely plays off of this relationship because we see kind of the relationship, you know, changing and and uh, especially as they they decide to get drunk during the night, which is hilarious. You know, Mm -hmm. you're you're at work and they have to pull an all nighter. And uh, so they're like, well, let's get drunk. And then they decide to go ghost hunting. You know when they're all hammered, which is you know kind of a <laughs> which kind is of a funny fine. thing. Sounds like which a great idea at the time, you know. Yeah, because there's only like you know two or three guests in the entire motel. It's kind of a joke that they're working anyway. You know, like yeah. th- that's not enough money to keep the lights on, really. But right. so I could see two people just kind of being like goofing off and screwing off and stuff. But um, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, was it me? And I, I don't know how if uh, you'll get this connection, but uh, Luke, played by Pat Healy. The very first time he came on screen, the first person I thought of was that is Adam Savage from Mythbusters. Oh really? Oh dude, spit an yeah, image to and, me. Well, it's it's it was like that, and a little bit of like the way he looked, and it, I immediately was like, oh, this is kind of a Simon Pegg type character or something too. Oh, it was totally. I think for me, it was the glasses and kind of the way he he said things. You know, they're they're both kind of. They they use that's this funny. kind of dry humor a little bit and a little bit sarcastic and, and stuff. That's, so I'm that's like, totally funny, man. I didn't. I now I'm thinking back to that. I'm like, oh, that's freaking totally him. Yeah. Like, just a different shade of red hair, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, that was hilarious, and that's who I kept thinking of the whole time. But no, he he has his own personality, and I agree with you. I thought they did fantastic. Uh, Sarah Paxton, uh, she's actually been in, in quite a lot. Of things, so she's she's a pretty established actress. Uh, Luke Healy, or Pat Healy, uh, I've never heard of him or seen him before, and I got to give him props for this. This was a great, I think, first major effort on his part. Um, and then I also have to mention Kelly McGillis, who plays this, you know, kind of old aging actress, uh, Leanne Reese Jones, uh, who, who checks in. 
Um, but apparently she's kind of a, she has a lot of history in a lot of major acting roles. And I looked her up on IMDb and I'm like, well, I've never seen anything she's done, but she has quite the laundry list of, of acting credits to her name. So that's, uh, it, it's kind of funny that she was cast in this role because this actress in real life is kind of at the same stage where, you know, she's kind of past her prime <laughs> and, you know, probably yeah, been, looking at, into, been in everything since the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of probably into a lot of other stuff now. And uh, so that was the same kind of character that we saw in this movie. So I thought that was. Yeah. And it's good. I, I think they, they avoided kind of uh, the writing was was done well. And Ty West wrote this as well. Uh, it was done well because. I didn't look at any of these characters and go, I've seen that one a thousand times. I mean, someone's similar, but like it wasn't like, oh, that's a knockoff of, you know, this guy's a Jack Black type character and she's like a Zoe Deschanel or, you know, it's like it wasn't, they kind of created their own little, their own little nuances to him. And so I thought that was, uh, the characters were, I, and I like that because then I can identify with them. When danger happens, then I, then I start to care about them because they're new people to me. They're not like, oh, I, you know, I, I easily get taken out of a movie and my, my disbelief is, is unsuspended when when I see a character that's I've seen a thousand times before. It's like and, and it's not believable either. I'm like that's bullcrap. These guys were ble- like the fact that she got grossed out and scared by things, you know, and like like I'm like yeah, exactly. Not like oh one oh my gosh, she scared me. It's like you know getting really scared. Like they they reacted like normal humans would. I really liked it. That's a great point because I can't think of of any other movie or any other maybe set of characters somewhere. That I'm like, oh, okay, he got that from this movie. He was kind of paying homage to that movie and this this character. Oh, yeah, this is the stereotypical geeky guy. You know, I, no, I mean these they were very dimensional. They had a lot to them, and uh, that's a great point. I hadn't really thought of that before. But you're right. You're right. What next, man? Because uh, how much do you want to get into some of these uh, scares and stuff? Because uh, I'll just go ahead. And Go I'll just say, yes. I'll say that uh, that the video that they played at the beginning on the laptop, freaking, it's like oh that God. that that false, sca- you know, that like that the joke video that has the you know the scare the scare in it or whatever. Yes, uh, that freaked me out. Like I jumped <laughs> a foot off my couch. I that, and it pissed me off because I wasn't like, you know, you expecting to see like oh I was I was thinking the whole time I was thinking paranormal activity. So I'm expecting the chair to start rocking. I'm expecting <laughs> right. a shadow to cross the floor or the dress to get up and move. You know, none of that happened. It's something else. I won't ruin it for all the people that are going to freaking crap their pants when it happens. But it's like such a cheap scare. It's like a you know a, a scare within a within a scary movie. Right. And uh, <laughs> but that's it scared the piss out of me. And I I it made me think. I as soon as that happened, I was like my heart was pounding so much. I'm like, do one of these days that's how I'm going to die. I'm going <laughs> to die. From a dumb jump scare in a horror movie, I'm gonna have a freaking heart attack one of these days because it freak it, it dude. It's like a shock to your chest. I'm oh, like, yeah. this cannot be good for my nervous system or my heart. <laughs> exactly. But it it totally got me, like, dude. I identified with that though because there are a lot of these floating around the web. Yeah. Um. And I I have been taken every time, <laughs> like every time, and I've seen many. There are so many versions of this. Um, and it's, you know, if you, we can't give too much away, but I'll just leave it at, I'm (laughs) taken every time and I kick myself. I'm like, I'm such, I'm so gullible, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So when, when that happens in the movie and, um, Luke is there and he's shaking his head and laughing, he's like, Oh, it gets him every time, every time I'm like, (laughs) you're laughing at me too, you bastard. Cause I, (laughs) that happens to me too. But, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, 
I loved, did you notice that, uh, and this is, again, I'm kind of getting off the scares and we'll get back on to that, but something I appreciated is that they were on a Windows laptop, not a Mac which I thought was really, really cool. Because, dude, think about it. Like, every movie yeah. that you see where they're on a computer, what kind of a computer is it? Oh, it's all Mac nowadays. Always. Yes. And this was like, uh, this was like I don't know, Windows XP or something? It was, it was oh, old, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. It was old and beat up and, and whatever. But uh, I, <laughs> I totally respected that they, they went with Windows here. And it was obvious. <laughs> so... That was uh, so that's that is an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't see that anymore because you the slick, technical savvy people usually have Macs in movies, you know. And that, but that kind of goes with them. Their equipment, like his camera, was broken, and their EVP equipment was kind of like malfunctioning, or so they thought, you know. And like so, it's kind of this like kind of thrown together thing. And I wonder if uh, I wonder if that's why because they're like, well, these guys are as much as they're trying to be high tech, they're still kind of low tech. Yeah, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't think that Ty West was going to use kind of things like that to try to establish any kind of coolness, any kind of cred, any kind of hipness. Right. uh, He was going to let the story and and the way he made the movie kind of establish that on its own. So I really respect it. And that's totally true. You throw a Mac on that on that counter that they were they were using the computer on and all of a sudden they become slick and sophisticated and cool yes. you know that's kind of and so yeah if it would have been up there i would have viewed that's an interesting choice it's an interesting point because i would have viewed them at the, these two characters as way more savvy technically savvy and and uh and prepared you know than i than i did mm-hmm. so that's that's interesting yeah now, um, yeah, as far as the scares go, um, we have kind of one creep out scene with the piano uh, going into the beginning. You know, she's up yeah. by herself and she's trying to do this EVP thing and uh, she starts thinking that she's hearing things. And were you like me? I was trying to listen really closely during those times. I'm like, I think I hear right. something, but I'm not sure either. So it's almost like you're experiencing that same kind of questioning of is there something there? Is there a not, or am I just hearing something? Maybe, maybe something kicked on, you know, in the basement of the house that I, I just, I didn't realize or something, but right. I felt kind of drawn into that same kind of thing. We see the piano playing itself, which again, there could be a lot of explanations for, but, um, that's kind of a, a creepy kind of thing. Did you get creeped out during that whole sequence? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's in this movie in general, like there. Most of the times where they wanted it to be scary, it didn't work out as well as the like the false scares of the of them playing tricks on each other. You know yeah. what I'm saying? But I would say that that was one of the times where I was like, "Oh, that's legitimately that yeah that what I was I was totally drawn in. I was listening. I was wondering what was going to happen. The keys moved, and and it was a good it was a good scare. So I'll agree with you on that one. There were a lot of other ones where, like uh, you know, the the guy in the tub that gets revealed, like oh, whatever. Man, For yeah. some reason. That the the effect was the the makeup and everything and the look of it was really creepy. But the way they like it's I don't know how to explain it. It just it did it wasn't it wasn't an effective kind of shock moment. It wasn't a jump scare. It was it was like it was kind of a little too slow. And the same thing with when the ghost kind of reveals her face. Right. It's slower. And so, but then at the same time, all the other kind of like false scares, the false jump scares of like you know the guy being right next to him being like. Hey, I didn't see it. Like, you know, and that she's looking through a window and then the guy yeah. comes up and says, Hey, you know, like, and that's a, that totally get like, that shocks my system and scares me 
more than some of the other moments where like a freaking ghost disgusting face is like you know in bed next to her or there's you know a bloody corpse in a bathtub it's like you know those things for some reason they looked scary but they didn't actually scare me in the same way they weren't revealed with the same uh you know the same bam you know the same intensity that would have i think would have augmented it for me uh, because I because I'm such a sucker sucker for jump scares and and sometimes gross stuff kind of creeps me. I mean those things were creepy, but the the movie for me didn't actually get scary until the until the, you know the last probably 15 minutes mm. or 20 minutes or something like that. That's interesting because they definitely kind of underplayed the truly horrific things going on the ghosts yeah. the the old man you know everything that happens basically during the third act of the movie. Um, but all of these false scares, you know, when she went down into the cellar, she was taking out the garbage and, you know, she kind of right. heard those weird sounds and goes down in the cellar. We have a, a false scare there as well. And so you're, you're right. Do you think maybe that was done on purpose? Because every truly horrific scare was, like I said, underplayed. Every false scare was really done with impact as far as the audio, the the stabs of music right. that they put in and, and the way they shot it. Do you think maybe that was that was kind of intentional and almost kind of well, a play on on horror films? Well, I'd see I don't know if it how how you know what the message was through that, if it was something more than just, you know, contained within the movie. But um I mean obviously this dude knows how to do horror and he knows how to do those jump scares. So the false scares were way more like shocking and and traditional and really effective, uh, and then yeah, it did seem like the other more the actual horror, uh, the actual you know disgusting disfigured people, the creeping ghosts and corpses and stuff. Those things were done slower, and it's almost like I could see what he was going for of being like, I don't need to have this jump out at you. This is going to be freaky enough on its own, mm. and I and I would say visually it was, but for some reason it didn't it didn't chill the same way that I thought it would, you know, hmm. the old, the old dude towards the end, that's like chasing her around or shows up behind her. That f- freaks me out. Like that, that guy was, that guy was freaky as hell. Yeah. Uh, and so that and all, everybody, but, but for some reason, like I, this is what I wrote for some reason, Madeline, the ghost just wasn't scary to me <laughs> until the very end. But then she yeah. just kind of like, it's, it wasn't, there wasn't that movement, you know, like, and I know I, I could see that like, Oh, really scary things don't need to, you don't need to play on like, you know, cheap kind of like uh, conventions, like vroom, they rush towards the screen. I mean, I watch, I thought every now when I see uh, ghost movies with women as the, like the main scary ghost, now I have to think of uh, the woman in black yeah. because it did it so freaking well. Like I was, I mean, it was nothing but a bunch of like ghost jump scares. Like where's the, where's the harm in this woman? I have no idea. I don't know what she's <laughs> capable of doing. I don't think she can do Jack to me, but so, for some reason her face like open mouth rushing towards the screen scares that crap out of me. Like, but for some reason this one didn't. And I, I think he wanted to just have like these characters sitting there. They weren't as aggressive. They weren't flying towards the screen, but they, he wanted it to be chilling. I don't think it came across quite, if, if that's what he was trying to do, I don't think it came across quite as effective. Cause I was like, Oh, I really wasn't scared of that ghost girl. She's, she just kind of stands there with her mouth open. Like it's kind of boring, you know, like, or, or whatever. There's a couple times where it did get to me, but all in all, I was like, I don't understand. You know, uh, the end. Oh, gosh, how to, how to, I want to talk about certain things, yeah, but we yeah. can't. <laughs> Dang it! I, but let, let's just say that, like, uh, well, anyway, um, yeah, the false scares were very startling and done really well. Obviously, this guy Ty West knows how to 
uh, pull those off. And so it was far, it was very deliberate. The other scares of, of the actual frightening, horrifying things. But I, I do agree that that piano scene was probably one of the more better. This is actually scary. This isn't a, this isn't a false jump scare. This is a this is a real scare. I thought that one worked well. And there's a couple other times. Uh, yeah, when the old dude shows up behind her at the top of the stairs, hmm. that was creepy. You know, her falling down in the flashlight, and you know that being chased. That's really what that, that that's that gets to me. Ghosts showing up and chasing you. I don't know why. I don't know what they're gonna do, but it it, it totally scares me. Yeah, I, I, to me, it affected me differently um, because I was genuinely scared when they revealed Madeline O'Malley, the ghost. She was very gruesome, very like totally. zombie-like, very dead-looking, and in in agony and and kind of an evil presence there. And uh, the old guy. At the end of the movie, that scene shocked me. It gave me goosebumps. I mean, I, I think yeah. about it, and I still, you know, the, literally, I'm thinking about it right now, and the hair is standing up in my arms. I'm, I'm kind of creeped <laughs> out about it. Um, so I think what did it for me was the difference that we saw. You know, these two innkeepers there at the beginning of the movie, again, very, very quirky, very playful, a great relationship here. You like these characters and you're almost wondering what is going to happen. Are we just going to see like a paranormal activity kind of thing or what's going to happen here? And then we see these horrific images at the end that, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of horror, the very horrific things may have been underplayed. But I think in the context of the entire movie, when you take the entire plot and the entire mood and atmosphere into account, they it it really worked for me. I, it was very effective to me. These visuals, even even they didn't rush towards the camera. You know, we didn't get anything more than they're just kind of sitting there. You know, the ghosts are just there, um, and it got to me just in the context of being in this kind of quirky, playful sort of uh, buildup that we had up until yeah. then. And sure, we're in this big spooky house, and things are kind of foreboding, and you you don't really know. Um, but, uh, it, it worked for me. I don't know. It, it really, really scared me. Um, and I think what I admire about this film overall is that, uh, I think it's a very intelligent film, uh, a lot of dialogue, but it's not a lot of dialogue to the point of where you're just like, get on with it. This is so cumbersome. It really works. It really develops the characters. It keeps things interesting. It doesn't try to answer all the questions that you have, especially at the end. I mean, dude, at the end, I'm just like, I have a whole list of questions. I'm like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? What really happened here? Why? And, I, you know, I got a million yeah. questions after seeing this. But I think that's great. I am glad they didn't try to answer a lot of these questions because now I can kind of draw my own theories. I can kind of play out in my mind what really happened. Like, do you agree with that? It's very psychological and it respects the audience, man. You got to kind of imagine a lot of what's going on here yeah i mean that was the i i will stick by the fact that i kind of think that's a negative i don't think they needed to go to a complete explanation of everything that happened but they did they led you down a certain way i mean like where that the clairvoyant you know um new age fading actress <laughs> i think you put it that way anyway uh she she gave information, right? So she could speak with them. She's like, oh, no, it's not this. There's this many people. It's this, and you're in danger, and da, da, da. I'm like, okay. And then by the end of the movie, I, I still don't know what she was talking about. Yeah. I, I don't know what she, I don't know how, what, I don't know what she said, how that had to do with anything that I saw. You know, like, uh, yeah, I don't get it. So, so I, and that was a little too much like, well, you gave me information that turned out to be 
from my understanding, turned out to be irrelevant, you know? And, well, and so, and you could, you could say like, oh, you're really in this first person kind of like you're, you're there with them. And so you don't know any more than they know, you know, where we're used to being omniscient as the audience, we're given information and, and, we're, and we're, we're allowed to like, you know, sort everything out. All I know is that like people that, that die in this hotel turn into ghosts. That's all I know. Did I miss something? No, I am. I'm totally of the opinion that her credibility was in question the entire time, um, and nothing that she said was necessarily. It, it didn't necessarily hold any weight, um, because she was spouting off these whole these whole things. She had crystals. She was into the new age healings and, and things like that, and uh, she drank a lot. Um, so she was, you know, impaired. A lot of this time. So a lot of these things that she was saying, the explanations, I mean, did she ever actually, you know, see these spirits like she claimed to, you know, there's there's spirits here. I can sense them. Oh, you know, just get out of here. Just get away. Did, did that really happen? Or was that just sort of her obsession with this whole, you know, new age thing she's obsessed yeah. with? Um, it, of course, the drinking, I think, is a big factor because they they kind of emphasize that. That totally. she, she drank a lot. So that could have something to do with her state of mind, her judgment and things. So I didn't But she was take also it. she was also giving her like strong explicit warnings of like be you know, this is gonna end and bad for you, be you're in danger, and it which turned out to be true, right? So like Yeah. So there what there, she did have I mean, yes, I, I didn't think about it that way, that her credibility was in question mostly at the end of the movie, I'm like, okay, well, no, she was right. I don't understand. I thought they were leaving at one point and then they, yeah. she was asleep. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, <laughs> or she's still in the house or something. Like, anyway, I, it was, it was a little, it was a little confusing that way. And I, I don't like to draw. I, I like it in a movie that like is psychological or there's like alternate interpretations. I, I, it has to be very clear that that's the kind of, the, the, the movie maker tells you, or kind of leads you, gives you enough information, and leaves you with like one or two questions, hmm. you know, like I'm all say it's like a sixth sense type type of thing, you know, like well, yeah, well, something that makes you think back and reevaluate. Maybe not sixth sense because that sixth sixth sense because that really does wrap it up kind of neatly. But there are movies where you're like, well, is it this? Is it that? I don't know. Like we'll leave you with a couple questions, but not all of it, you know, like not hey, everything we told you might might, might not be true. But it, it wasn't that kind of movie where it was like. Question reality, question perception. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it it didn't have that feel to me, which makes me not want to go down that route if, of just having this open interpretation. I mean, I can choose to question everything uh, about this movie, but that didn't make it didn't make sense for me to do that with this one. I didn't I didn't get left with that feeling that that was what the intention. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I can see that. I just saw it being open to a certain amount of interpretation. Yeah, this was obviously sure, sure. a a supernatural movie. There were ghosts. Bad things do happen as a result of these ghosts. And I think the interpretation of exactly why they're there and and what happened, I I think it's that kind of thing. And uh, but no, you're right. You're you're not questioning, you know, whose reality is real here. And right, you know, you're not you're not drawn into such a such a mind blowing ending that you're like, oh my god, did I just take a hit of acid here and just like totally, <laughs> you know, it's not that kind of yeah. thing. But there there are questions here. But yeah. Uh, I think all in all, you know, it's a great movie to talk about and to spur that kind of discussion. 
where you know you can have competing views of what happened at the end and uh, kind of what were the characters up to and and what were their motivations and their credibility you know that that says something for the way they made this um because obviously there there's going to be a lot of uh, of people taking this different ways so i think that's to the film's credit i, I you know yeah, i'm i'm uh, a big like you know thinking man's kind of kind of uh, advocate and i really i really want to you know have have questions being being set at the end of the movie and i don't need everything explained and shown to me so that's where i'm coming from on this i i could agree with that it, I, this does beg kind of a second watch to maybe go back and pay closer attention to the facts cuz there's a there's there are some things to follow and figure out and uh and i could i could see myself watching this again to go Oh, okay. Did that? Did that? Did that happen? Like I thought it. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. What? Oh, she said that. Now, now knowing what I know, that makes more sense, and I, I could definitely piece piece it together probably a little bit better with the second watch for sure. Yeah, and I'll vouch for a second watch because I did it. Um, I put it in a second time, and it's just as enjoyable that time. Really? And and yeah, you know what's coming, and yeah, you you know a lot of the scares you you know are going to be there, but. Again, he made such a, a great movie story-wise. I like the characters. I like seeing what's going on. Um, you know, again, it's like you're the kind of person where, no, don't go in that door. No, don't do that. Oh, come on. Maybe this time around they're not going to do what they did. Yeah. And just just get out of the hotel. Just just get out. of. Don't come <laughs> back. And, you know, or you're kind of hoping for that. And you have that same kind of enjoyment out of it. So it has rewatchability which is a big thing for me because I'm a big rewatcher. Uh, I love a film that I can put in time after time and enjoy time after time, even though I know what's going to happen. But uh, this did it for me. So, yeah, I think you should give it a second watch for sure, man. Well, uh, so what do we think? Are we we ready to rate? I'm ready to rate this, man, and I'm interested in uh, where you (laughs) come in on a scale of 1 to 10. Um you know, being that you're interested, I mean that that pulls some weight right there. You you want a it second does. watch, so that's cool. Yeah, it's uh, so so. I'll, I'll try and give a brief summary because maybe some of the things that I wanted to say that I didn't. In it, it, it does. Uh, these are great characters. I think they're very interesting. They're very believable, likable, realistic. Uh, it does have a certain mood to it. The first half, which is a little bit more comical. Uh, one of the things. I didn't that I didn't mention is this had a Goonies feel to it for some reason. It, maybe it might have been the score uh, or, that, that went along with it, but it was very much it, it felt very uh, adventury and and like and Goonies like. Yes. For, for for a good portion of it, then it changes and it gets really intense, and the music changes as well, uh, and it gets scarier, and all of the things you're afraid of start to become visualized. But I will say, not to the extent that I wanted. There wasn't there wasn't enough of it for me. It started to get visual. There was the old dude. There was the ghost, whatever. But I was expecting more mayhem. I was expecting more chaos. Uh, I was expecting more of what we saw towards the end when the action really started to to uh, pick up and, and kind of go out of control. It didn't last long enough. It was a, a little too short-lived for me, and I would like to have seen – I wanted to be scared more by it because it was – you had some great characters, and you had you, – this, this girl, um, Claire, is super likable. She's just almost like this little – 
tomboy, you know, kind of like just young. It's like I, I'm like, is she 13 or 23? I can't tell. Like <laughs> she's very she, cool. Like I would want to hang out is. with her, you know, and just just yeah. play some video games or something. But you know? it, and so you like her, you're drawn to her, and so when these things happen, you definitely don't want things to go poorly for her. But uh, so it, it's the the film is effective in so many ways, and it's great to watch, and it's interesting, and it has some good scares. But all in all, it didn't have enough for me, and it wasn't. It wasn't to the level that I think this is going to like go down in the history books, you know, as one of the great horror movies of all time. I could be wrong. I don't think it will. I think this is probably going to sit around and and the way I feel about it. Actually, I'll probably put it above. I think it's an above average horror film for sure. Uh, whether I'm going to say <clears throat> a seven or an eight, I'm gonna I'm gonna side with seven. Do you do half points? Uh you can sure. You can do quarter <laughs> points too if you want. Actually. Oh wow! I would I would do like I would do like a seven and a half. You know, it, nice. that's where I feel comfortable. I'm like, oh, this is a good fun film. It had some great scares to it. It was great to watch. I liked the characters. Nothing was so far fetched. I mean, they, one of the things that I really get uh, tired of is the is the friends that are like, oh, I got you. They they scare each other, and then of course that becomes, hey, stop fooling around, guys. Hey, is that you? Come on, I'm really starting to get scared. Like I get right. so tired of that. And they only kind of did that once, you know? Yeah. And they and they only did the scare each other like to a certain extent. Uh and so that that could have gotten on my nerves big time and lowered it a point. But but um yeah, I think it's I think it's a really fun film to watch. I thought it was pretty scary at times. And uh I think I think most horror fans are gonna really enjoy it, especially if you like if you like ghost movies and you like and you like good characters and a good story along with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great rating. I'm really happy you came in like that. I'm I'm gonna be really close to you, but I'm gonna be a little bit higher because, uh, as I said before, a lot of the things that happened in the movie affected me a lot more, and I was uh, I was drawn in to what he was trying to do, and I thought it was a fantastic film. I I just again I can't say enough about Ty West. I really dig him. I really think he's the kind of filmmaker that we need right now in the horror genre. Uh, he, sure. he does it right. He's all about excellence. He, he shoots everything so well. Um, and to me, that, that pulls so much weight because, and, and you, I mean, Terry, you, you come from, like, you know photography, you know uh, the cinematography and, and different techniques when it comes to camera. And uh, he does it right and he pays attention to these things that makes a visually pleasing picture. Yeah. And uh, it, it's so good. So, um I really loved, again, what Ty West has been doing, and I really, really dig his style. Um, even though this is very, very different from House of the Devil, uh, I, I think he is developing a definite style as to who he is as a director. And I think people are realizing that, and I can't wait to see what he does uh, in the future. You know, he just... For sure. Oh, because it's great. Uh, I just, I love his style. We didn't even talk about the score here. Um, just a great, great audio bed the entire way through. A an original score that uh, was highly effective. Um, we pointed out before, that, you know, the different types of scares that we see and how they use things. But overall, I thought the audio, the score to this was phenomenal. And I loved how he used totally. it. Totally, It felt very... There, there was a lot of good taste, I think, in how yeah. he made this. It, it was stylistically fantastic. Very scary for me towards the end. It was a slow burn, but that's Ty West. And uh, to me, I love the slow burn kind of movies. The things that pull me one way for maybe the first couple acts, but then they tug me an entirely different direction and take me way over this direction during the third act. 
and I'm just drawn in and just completely wow. Wow, did that just happen? It, it's great. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a really intelligent film. Um, and uh, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10, which is only a half point difference. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's pretty good. So uh, people definitely, you, you need to go check this out. Um, I just got the, the DVD, and I'm tempted to uh, do the Blu-ray. Uh, but it's like, eh, do I want to buy it twice? I don't know. But I, 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 I've already yeah. watched it, and I can't wait to share this with more people. And to uh, to watch it a third, fourth, fifth time because I think this is the kind of movie I can show people comfortably. You know, I can I can show this to a mixed crowd of people. You know, there's nothing in this a lot of horror. You got to be careful. You might offend certain people, and they might not no you know yeah. be comfortable around certain depictions of things. But in this movie, you know, this is this is a good movie. You can put in maybe around Halloween, or you, you can show a mixed group of friends. And maybe some family and things like that. And I think it's a great horror movie to uh, to do that with. So, yeah, yeah. But thank you for talking about this with me tonight, man. Dude, it was my pleasure. It's so good to be back podcasting with you. Oh, oh yeah. We got to do this more often. But uh, Terror Horror Metropolis, again, you're doing great work. And, uh, you know, man, uh, what do you got coming up next? I mean, by the time we hear this, uh, the second episode is going to be out, which, of course, you're not involved in. But uh, Nope. Do you have a took a, do you week, have a took a week off? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> do you have a sneak peek of anything? Just a hint of, of dude. Worry. I got I got nothing for you. I just oh. got out of school, and uh, I'm I'm dry. Everything's going to be building up from here. So you know, I'm going to start working on more, uh, filming more shorts this summer. I got a couple cool. music videos that I'm going to be working on, stuff like that, non horror stuff. But I'm excited because from this point forward, man, it's all about building uh, my film career. So awesome. my, my, my master's project is going to be a documentary that I'm going to shoot part of in Italy. So I'm excited to kind of get going wow. uh, on what, what will be my life's work, which is, which is, which is making the things that uh, other people hopefully will, will critique and give me uh, you know pointers on. So uh, yeah, but as far as podcasting, I'm on uh, – that's it. I don't know. I, we're going to record next week. After this uh, this recording, we'll, we'll record the third episode of uh, Horror Metropolis. But I'm, I'm kind of I'm I'm excited to get back in into it with uh, Doc, Bill, and uh, Jay the Dead. Oh yeah, it's been too long. It's been too long. Oh yeah, and the magic is still there, like I said. And <laughs> and, and dude, it's like you're 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 like a total artist over there. I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm kind of jealous. I'm like, dude. Of you're, what you're making, you're making films and videos. You're going to Italy. You're kind of sta- doing I'm starting. the whole. I'm starting. Uh, we'll talk. We'll we'll come back one year from today right. and review that statement. But. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. But thank you again for your time tonight and and talking with me about this film. And uh, hopefully we'll do this again, man. It's been my pleasure. I look forward to the next time. All right. Good night, brother. See ya. The human being you once knew is dead. I ah! am the Zombie King. Well, if you just so happened to be at Landmark Cinemas in uh, Peoria, Illinois this past Saturday by any chance, then you were treated to the premiere of a new short horror film called Mictophobia. And with me right now are two of the people who were involved in this really, really cool piece of horror. Uh, First of all, I'd like to welcome writer, director, Brian Wolford. Brian, thanks for coming on tonight. Oh, thanks for having us, Corey. Yeah, absolutely. And also, we have the star of the film with us, Kitsy Duncan. Great to talk to you tonight, Kitsy. The pleasure is all mine. Oh, well, I appreciate that you guys could take your time and talk to me about this short, because, uh, Brian, you've really made a fantastic 
film here. Um, I, I had a lot of fun watching it. I really appreciate that you kind of gave me a special pre-screening of it and um, you wanted to hear my thoughts and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. So just for the, the listeners here, can you give us kind of a quick rundown of what Mictophobia is about? Uh, well, Mictophobia is uh, a real like, condition and Mictophobia is actually the fear of darkness. Uh, and this movie specifically deals with a uh, woman named Kelly who has an intense fear of the darkness, feels like there's some sort of weight that's like on her, and um, she is left at home by herself for a couple of nights when the lights go out, and suddenly she's seeing a bunch of weird stuff in her house, and it sort of boils down to is is something really going on, or is this all just part of her fear inside of her head? Right, right. And Kitsy, you did a great job in the role of Kelly. Um, how'd you get? Thank uh, you. How'd, how'd you get involved with Brian here and, and uh, getting this role and getting things going? The place most indie film uh, networking happens, which is Facebook. Awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. And and uh, you've been in a lot of different productions through the years here. But uh, you know, you've, you've started out doing a lot of modeling, and uh, then uh, it kind of got into acting. After that, so uh, you know you're doing a lot of uh, horror type things. You know what what draws you to the horror genre here, as opposed well, to like being a romance kind of thing or anything like well, that. I, I do love the horror genre myself. Um, not until recently, though. I used to be terrified of them, <laughs> kind of like Kelly was terrified of the darkness. Um, you know, it's it's just such a great crowd of people, and the networking online is so fantastic. You know. I, both Brian and I are both in the Midwest and it's not Hollywood. So um, honestly, the best way I've found to get in touch with a lot of these horror directors and producers is via Facebook and Twitter. And um, I've met so many great people and Brian was absolutely amazing on set. Um, It was so much fun, met some great people. um, And I think he did a fantastic job. Oh, you (laughs) Oh, you. <laughs> Brian, you did do a fantastic job with this, oh, man. Um, everything coming together. I mean, the production on this, I thought, was fantastic. Uh, just from the look of it, the cinematography, um, especially, like, the audio was really, really good, too. It was so effective. Um, so how did this all come into existence, like, all, all this come about? Where'd you get the idea, and, and what's the reason that you made this? Well, sort of first chime in on Kitsy's point, uh, it seems like a lot of horror networking also happens at stuff like Horror Hound Weekend, which is sort of the biggest uh, horror convention in the Midwest, and you meet all sorts of people, and of course with Drunken Zombie, we go to those all the time, so I mean, we see films, we know actresses and actors and stuff, and it's easy to sort of like, oh, well, she only lives a couple hours away, I bet, like... If she, if she was interested in being my movie, I could probably get her to come down for a weekend or something, and everything just seems to work out that way. Oh, very um, cool. I was actually uh, contacted th- by uh, Jab Pictures, who do uh, these sort of, uh, I don't want to call them anthologies, but they're sort of like short film collections, mm-hmm. um, and this is actually going to be the fourth volume, and they get ten filmmakers together, and they give them a theme or an object or something, and they asked me to come on this one, which was about emotions. Of course, I was given the emotion fear, and I was like, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, I know exactly what I can do. So I looked up a bunch of uh, a list of phobias, and I told myself, all right, we are not doing anything with fear of the dark, so I need to find something else. <laughs> 
And I looked through everything and nothing jumped out at me at all. So I'm just like, ah, oh, crap. And I was looking through it and I saw Mictophobia and I saw that it was listed as fear of darkness. And just the way that that's worded, fear of darkness, sort of gives the dark essentially like more of like a, a more of a presence. Right. And I was like, ooh, that'd be really cool. What if the darkness itself like would be part sort of the uh, antagonist in this story or whatever? So I sort of just sat down. I literally wrote out the script in like a day and a half. Already had Kitsy in mind because we were friends on Facebook. And I knew she'd been putting out uh, feelers on Facebook that if anybody had any scripts or anything to send them her way. So I sent it to her. Uh, the next morning she said yes. And uh, the uh, one of the because other main actors. the script actor- was amazing. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I'm, I, I would more think she was just knew she was going to be bored that weekend and figured she'd just come film instead. But uh, <laughs> whatever. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm really good friends with the uh, one of the other actors, Steve Christopher, that's in it. And uh, so I asked him, and he's like, and basically with Steve, it's like, hey, Steve, you want to be in a movie? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> Do you even want to know what it's about? Nope. Just tell me when to show up. Oh, and awesome. the funny thing is, Steve Christopher and I have been dying to work together forever since we met. And um, it just so happened that this just this was the project. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, so Kitsy, what was production like uh, on this thing as far as uh, just how you shot it and, and uh, your role in it and just working with everybody? I mean, I know you said you had a, a great time with Brian, um, but overall, uh, what was this like? It, it was it was a lot of fun, believe it or not. You know, scary movie sets are fun, and the food was amazing, thanks to Brian's lovely wife. Um, nice. <laughs> but the the crew was absolutely awesome. Um, the cast was fantastic. The small cast that it was, and it was it was very professional. I know you don't expect that from indie film all the time, but it, it really was. And and even you know you said it was shot beautifully. Even being on set. The lighting was so beautiful. So um, it, it was just a really good time. And hint, hint, can't wait to work with Brian again. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. So uh, you, you just had the premiere of this. Um, actually, as we're recording it, it was just yesterday, as a matter yep. of fact. Uh, how did that go? Uh went fantastically. Uh, we had a lot of people show up. Uh, we decided, uh, you know, this probably isn't going to play on a big screen all that much. So... Let's just get together and uh, through Drunken Zombie, we run a uh, monthly uh, double horror feature at a local theater. And so I asked them, like, hey, I got this short film. I kind of want to hold a premiere for it. Can we uh, hold it here? And they basically told us, look, if you get a lot of people to show up, uh, we won't charge you for the theater because they'll make money off concessions. Awesome. So it was originally just supposed to be a pretty small like cast and crew gathering. But I'm like, you know what? Let's just open it up. Whoever wants to show up can show up. And so... Uh, it was absolutely free. We didn't charge anything. Uh, we showed all of our old short films and stuff leading up to uh, uh, the Mictophobia premiere. And yeah, we just had a lot of people show up. Everybody had a good time. Uh, a lot of my family showed up who I don't think are big horror fans, but you know, they came out to support. So they showed up, heard my aunt scream a couple times during a couple of my short films. So all right. All right. it was completely worth it. Uh, but yeah, everybody seemed to like it. Everybody told me how. Like uh, you were saying, it has how great it looks. And I've said from day one, look, you may not really like the short film. You may not think that the story is good or whatever, but there is nobody on the face of this planet that can deny that it looks beautiful. Like the way it's shot, it just looks amazing. Absolutely. And I got to thank uh, like 
my cinematographers, my camera guys, uh, Brandon Lampright and Darren Ford, who I work with on everything, and the super awesome, uh, talented Tony Wash, who I'm a good friend with, who did uh, It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To, came down from Chicago and helped us out, and all three of them made this look as good as it does. So all the compliments I get, I have to pass on to them because they're mainly responsible for it. <laughs> awesome. Kitsy, what was it like to see yourself on the big screen? Like, was that I, a crazy thing? I unfortunately wasn't there. I really oh. wanted to be. We live about four and a half hours apart. So for Mother's Day, I wanted to be here for the kids today. So Oh, well, there you go. There you go. But it's I okay. She, she got to see it a couple of weeks before anybody else. So Nice. Nice. Well, that just means and you're going to have to get it up on the big screen again here at some point, Brian, and make sure Kitsy can, can come and see herself like. Uh, yeah, the, the premiere we had is sort of just like the local, like, hey, all my friends and family could come out. Uh, technically, the real premiere is going to be at uh, Days of the Dead in Indianapolis, July 6th. And that's sort of another big horror convention in Indianapolis, Indiana. And they're showing all of the collective volume four is going to be premiering at this event. It will be uh, available on DVD for the first time at this event. So it's sort Which of is our, only about 45 big, minutes from my house. So I'll be at that one for sure. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of the big premiere for everybody. But this one we had, uh, you know, the other day was mainly just for family and friends and stuff and whoever wanted to come out. But yeah, the the big one's going to be an indie. So I highly recommend anybody who's within distance coming on and uh, checking it out. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I, I was going to ask you about that, you know, how, how people were going to be able to see this and, and uh, perhaps get a hold of a, a DVD, like you said. So um, that July premiering then, Days of the Dead, that'll be the first time then that the DVDs are made available? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have some. I'll be selling it uh, through uh, our website, you know, drunkenzombie.com and my own personal website, brianwolford.net, whatever. Uh, but yeah, so I mean... Copies will be pretty cheap, the ten dollars I think, and oh, you get yeah. ten short films. So it's basically you're paying a dollar a piece for a short film. And uh, you know, hey, if you don't like one short film, hopefully the next one's got something for you. So I mean, ten bucks I don't I don't think that's too bad of a too bad of a price tag. No way, no way. That's awesome. That's a, that's a great price. And like you said, it's a steal. You, you're getting ten different shorts here and a lot of variety. Uh, but I'll definitely let everybody know when that is available when they can uh, go and order the DVD and I'll, I'll put up some links and stuff. So uh, I'll be watching out for that, man. Um, you know, I love, uh, you know, Kitsy, you got involved with Brian through Facebook and, and you guys did some fundraising on Indiegogo, which is like a huge thing. You know, a, a lot of people are getting money for their indie films on Indiegogo. And uh, I thought that was really cool. Kitsy did a, a cool little uh, promo video uh, for it. And uh, I just like that whole aspect. So, I mean, uh, it's interesting just how films are being made that way now, as opposed to, you know, even five, ten years ago, mm. uh, whenever I, it was a lot tougher to raise money, to make connections the way that we do now. So, uh, you know, this is this is a cool little study in making these kind of films this way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you're like an indie filmmaker, it's so easy to sort of make films now which is both good and bad. I mean, yeah. obviously bad, the bad is the marketplace is sort of flooded. So, I mean, there's never, I don't think at this point going to be like an indie boom like there was in the 90s. But the other thing is with the internet and stuff, you basically can just self, uh, self-publish self all your movies and everything. So, I mean, people from all over the place can, can market it. And uh, equipment's really cheap. Uh, you find places on like Facebook and stuff to advertise. You'll get actors and actresses coming in. So, I mean... 
really, if you want to make movies, like it's so easy now. There's not even really an excuse for for you not doing it. So, right, right. So, uh, Kitsy, like I said, there, you have a lot of things going on. You've done a lot of uh, work and, uh, like I said, modeling. And so, uh, how can people find out more about you and and uh, what you're doing? Um, I have a website that desperately needs to be updated. Um, it's kitsyduncan.com. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's my fault. I need to update it, and I have not. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Search Kitsy Duncan. Um, Twitter, Pinterest. I am a social networking addict, so just know that I post a lot, and I, I get a little annoying. And I, I think I'm a lot funnier in my head than I am actually on Twitter. So, but <laughs> no, no, no. She's she's actually funny. Don't listen to her. <laughs> Oh, that's really cool. But uh, no, we will be uh, watching for things coming up uh, that you have going on uh, because uh, you're you're doing great work. And uh, well, so awesome. And Brian, uh, you, you got a lot of websites going on, a lot of places oh. where you live online. So um, you, you mentioned a couple of them already. You've got drunkenzombie.com, uh, brianwolford.net. Where else uh, can we go? Anywhere else that you want to want to plug here? Oh, well, let's start uh, the whoring of promotion, I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, drunkenzombie.com. You know, we run a horror podcast. We've been around for a while. It's really stupid. Don't listen to it. Uh, oh, yeah, right. Stop <laughs> it. Uh, net. B-R-Y-A-N-W-O-L-F-O-R-D.net. That's sort of just my personal blog, but I have stuff listed for the movies and everything. Um, if you want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, because uh, I have a lot of my shorts and just crazy stuff that I film up there, uh, it's B Wolford B W O L F O R D seventy nine on YouTube. Stop in there, subscribe to it, and then uh, you know you'll get an update every time I post something. Um, uh, as part of Drunken Zombie, we also uh, run our yearly film festival, which is now open for submissions. So if there's any other Indie horror filmmakers out there listening, uh, stop by our uh, festival website, drunkenzombiefilmfestival.com, and submit your movies. Uh, we do not charge an entry fee because we hate film oh. festivals that do. That's awesome. So That's awesome. Yeah. I have a yeah. short I need to send you. <laughs> Definitely do it. Uh, you know, we're, we're open for just about anything you think would fit in a horror film festival. Uh, we, we've gotten a lot of awesome submissions and everything. It's just, yeah, we love uh, indie horror film, and we like to find stuff that, hey, you know, maybe a lot of people wouldn't have found out about this movie. So then we throw it in the festival, we put it up for, you know, we have a whole weekend of screenings. People come out. I know that multiple filmmakers, I get emails from them months later saying, oh, my gosh, I've sold, like, you know, 20 copies of my movie strictly because people saw it at your film festival and wanted to pick it up. Wow. So, I mean, we try to introduce people to independent horror and uh, we we don't look to uh, make ourselves rich off of it, so we don't charge people to enter. Just send your movie, and we'll take a look at it. Hopefully, we'll like it and put it in. You know, good and stuff. And do you and ever I, sleep, Brian? Uh, doesn't feel like it most of the time, unfortunately. <laughs> well, that dude, Brian. Thanks for your attitude towards filmmaking and the whole indie thing that you got going on and, and just even, you know, the, the, the small things like you don't charge the entry fee for the film oh, yeah. festival and stuff. I mean, this is, this is what indie filmmaking is all about. And, and you're kind of the backbone, you know, part of the backbone of, of, uh, indie filmmaking and, and why it's great. And people well, have I, the, the right attitude about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, 
I don't know. We try. Uh, like when I was first talking to Kitsy about you know doing mictophobia, the first thing I told her is I'm gonna like look you. You won't have any pressure on the set. Like I try to, everything I do because I've worked on a couple independent movies like when I was in college and stuff uh, that were just their sets were horrible. There's people yelling at me and I'm like I'm not even getting paid. I don't even know why I'm here <laughs> if you're gonna yell at me. So all I made a stand that all of my sets there's gonna be no negativity. We're making movies that's supposed to be fun. Everybody should be having fun. There's not a reason anybody should be upset about anything. Yeah. So I try to carry that over. Yeah. And I try to carry that over to other stuff. It's like it's movies. Movies are you're supposed to enjoy movies. It's supposed to be fun. Like everybody makes it all about oh, we need to make money off stuff and blah blah blah. It's like that's not fun for anybody, so Yeah. And, we and, try. and and sure it's nice if you make money off of it, you know. That's not it's not like you're against that at all because I'm, I'm oh, sure yeah, yeah. you know, you'd love to you know, <laughs> love to cash in on, on you know, your love of what you're doing here and uh because you oh, obviously definitely. have a passion and it'd be it'd be nice but it, it's not always uh it's not what you're shooting for it's not the goal yeah yeah so it's not like with the film festival i mean realistically there's no reason for us to charge an entry fee like we would not really use that money for anything that we're lacking without charging an entry fee yeah so it's like yeah fuck it we won't charge an entry fee so like you know that's just sort of the thing i know I specifically know because I've entered film festivals and have been told how uh, their attitude towards money is after I've entered and was really upset that I spent money on it when they, you know, I, I've heard of them sort of stopping the submissions and then being like, oh, okay, we're going to extend the submission deadline for another two weeks. And then I send a movie in and I find out like, oh, no, they had their lineup already like nailed tight and then just uh -huh. opened up the submission to get more people to submit so they get more money to come in. Like, they were never planning on picking any of those movies. Amazing. So I was like, well, that's... Bad. Yeah. So that's just the type of stuff that just drives me up a wall. So for our film festival, we can always guarantee, hey, you know, we can't offer, like, huge, like, cash rewards, cash awards or anything for your films, but yeah, you don't have to, like, you know, spend... If you have, like, four short films, you don't have to spend $100 just to send them to us and hope that we like them and we'll put them in the film festival. Otherwise, you're out, you know, however much money. Right. It's all about loving movies and showing movies. So that's yeah. completely where our headspace is at. Dude, yeah, I, I, have a question I, I love you, for man. Brian, if that's cool. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> I, I know you were you were with the collective. It's ten minutes, and ten minutes is all you get. Are you going to come up with the director's cut? Um, maybe. Like I sort of really like like sort of how Mictophobia is now. There's maybe a couple of things that I would maybe want to throw back in. But um, at oh, this don't point, don't get me wrong. I love it the way it is. I was just curious if because I know yeah. you have more footage. So yeah, yeah, we've we've talked about it, and we actually had like a pretty long cut that we're like, oh, we got to cut like three minutes out of here somehow. And uh, I don't know. It, everybody, like the three of us, the the main core three of us that uh, like shot it and were editing and everything, are just so exhausted with mectophobia at the moment after the premiere's oh. over, like. <laughs> Let's just take a couple weeks off and not talk about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that you've just been so enveloped in it, man. You're just like, I don't, I don't want to even have to think well, about this. Or... <laughs> it's weird being a filmmaker because I mean, you make these movies and then you watch them when you're putting them together. You probably watched them about a hundred times. Oh yeah. And by the time it was done, like even like Friday night, we were sitting around and I'm just like, 
I don't even know if this movie is good. Like, I can't. My, <laughs> yeah. my like, objectivity is so out the window at the moment. I'm like, I don't even know if it's good. I don't even know if people are going to like it. At this point, I've seen it a hundred times, so I don't know. I can't zero in on, like, oh, yeah, that's really good. I'm like, I have no idea. So hopefully everybody <laughs> likes it. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So, no, this is great talking to you guys. Um, and uh, all the links that, uh, Brian, that you talked about, you know, whoring yourself out there just a few minutes ago, you know, for all the, um, you know, the, the plugs and whatnot, I will uh, put them up in the show notes so that people will easily be able to uh, get to you. And the same with you, Kitsy. I'm going to put all your information up as well. And uh, people definitely Thank need you. to check you both out because, Kitsy, like I said, you're, you're doing great work. And uh, I think people should find out more about you and kind of follow you, see where you're going next. Uh, because, uh, yeah. And, Brian, like I said, dude, you, you're just uh, you're really talented. you got the right attitude about it, man. So whatever He's I need to do to help you out, it's it's all good. So, and uh, uh, Thank you very much. And I'm just going to plug one thing here now, Brian, while I got you on. You know, you're also a, a writer as far as uh, fiction oh, yeah. and everything. And I was really honored uh, to be in a, a great anthology with you because I do a little bit of writing myself. And uh, we were in Dark, a horror anthology together. Yeah. And uh, you're, I really enjoy your writing, too. And uh, oh, so uh, you have a great story in there. A lot of a lot of podcasters and, and uh, kind of friends all, you know, chipped in stories and they're all very talented. So, um, yeah, I think people should go and seek out Dark, a horror anthology. So that was that was a lot yeah. of fun and uh, appreciate you including me. In, on oh, it was it was awesome. Like your story was great. Otherwise, we would have been like, yeah, the story's not so good. Let's kick him out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, yeah, Dark was awesome to put together. Uh, we we're hoping to do like a sequel to it. And me and Steve Wands, who uh, was my co-editor on that book, we both like our lives just got completely crazy. We just never got around to it, and I think it just fell by the wayside. So yeah. hopefully, one day the sequel will come out. But uh, at the moment, who knows when that will ever be? Yeah, yeah, you got a few things going on, so you know. It's, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, guys, once again, thanks for taking some time here tonight, uh, Kitsy. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, this is uh, really cool, and I, I appreciate you taking time from your family to talk with me. But um, like I said, Mictophobia definitely worth checking out. I will keep all the listeners updated as to uh, when they can score some DVDs of this. So, Brian Kitsy, thanks again, and hopefully, I'll be talking with you again soon. Thanks, Thank Corey. you so much. The entire country is in utter chaos. We're all afraid. It's been about four months since our break. We heard a message on the radio about an operation to eradicate the threat. We've not got much time. We've got contact in the perimeter. I don't know how they've reached the compound. We have to engage! Getting out of it. Take the road through the forest and stick to the country route on the east coast. Okay. Pretty soon this entire country is going to be one big graveyard. Calling it Operation Inferno. They can't do that. They can. They will. Stand me. It's a death trap. We need to get out of here. Oh, my God.
Back in 2009, I believe, there was a zombie movie that came out. It was found footage called The Zombie Diaries. I really, really loved that movie, and uh, maybe that uh, I'll talk about that on an upcoming show. Um, because I have talked about it on other podcasts. On the Midnight Podcast, I reviewed it. So you might have already heard me talk about it and how much I liked it. So I recently got the opportunity to watch the sequel. Zombie Diaries 2 just came out. It's pretty new. And uh, I had high hopes for this. I was really excited, even though I realized that it probably wasn't going to be as good. I mean, it is a sequel. Sequels generally just aren't as good. But I'm like, you know, I'm a sucker for the found footage thing, which you guys know. Uh, I love zombies, and it's really hard to go wrong with zombies. So I was really (laughs) expecting this. Uh, to be better than it was, because it turned out to be terrible. This movie turned out to be absolutely terrible. I just got to say it now. Um, We follow, of course, found footage. The zombie apocalypse has already happened. The outbreak has already happened. This is a UK thing again. And so it picks up basically after the, the last movie left off. Everything's already gone down. The army, we follow this uh, platoon, this squadron, whatever they are. And I'm sorry, I just don't know. Um, but it's basically this this group of people who are in charge of going through and investigating things and, and cleaning places out, going taking care of zombie problems. And uh, they're at this fortified compound and things just go wrong. The zombies get in and so they have to escape. And from here on, the movie is just a lot of running around. And, oh, there's some zombies. Oh, man, let's run. And sometimes they shoot them. Sometimes they don't. Uh, we run into, you know, groups of survivors who are just really horrible people. We see a lot of rape, uh, zombie rape, <laughs> and living people rape. And it's not real graphic, but it does happen. And there, there seems to be a lot of it. There's like two or three, like, rape scenes in this. So, yeah, they're trying to be shocking, but uh, it, it comes off flat. The zombie action just comes off as uninteresting uninspired uh they were trying to recreate a lot of the themes that they were talking about in the first one um and this is just nowhere near as believable as the first one i just i couldn't get into it um nothing exciting like i said this is flat and uninspired when you see the scenes of zombies and violence they're just not effective at all it was just very very boring i didn't care about any of the characters I don't feel like I knew any of the characters. I think they tried to sell you on some of the characters, but they didn't do it well enough for it to have any kind of effect. And I don't think the acting was good at all. It's like, um, I think the actors were acting more in a style that was suited for a conventional type of film, not found footage. These people were not acting natural. They were acting like actors. And so it doesn't line up. The whole thing is just way out of way out of sync with what it's trying to do. You know, you got to have people that are spontaneous a little bit. But this thing, it was obviously scripted. They were obviously saying lines, and uh, they weren't bad actors, but they were just not acting for this style of film. Uh, yeah, it just wasn't scary. Um, it had some kind of shocking moments, jump scare kind of things, uh, but it, it just wasn't great. Uh, I didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. They tried to capture horror and and terror, everything that was great about the first one, 
and it failed. Um, <laughs> oh, miserably. Um, and another thing that they did, you know, found footage. If you're going to do a found footage film, you got to stick with that style. Um, so you got to stick with a lot of stuff that you just found on this camera and uh, a lot of the shooting that was done. They kind of went back and forth in between found footage and some conventional shots. They were trying to go back and, and kind of show you some backstory. And it was really weird. Like, it didn't work. Like, like scenes of the army guys running through the woods and, oh, there are zombies, run. And so they were running and the shaky cam and everything. And then it would cut to, uh, you know, scenes of other things happening in the past that they were trying to convey. And those were very steady, very well shot. At the end of the movie, then, uh, we also see something that felt really tacked on. But, uh, you know, it's kind of what happened at the end. Uh, and that was not found footage style either. So they tried to weave these two together and it's just like, it makes for a really weird off balance kind of thing. I mean, it was, it was, it was not good. It was not good. Uh, I just, I did not get into it. So I was so disappointed. I wanted to like this and was excited about it and uh, it just really fell flat. So I'm giving this a 2 out of 10. The only points that I'm given here is uh, because at the very beginning, there is uh, some footage that they just found on uh, on some random camera that the army guys found, I guess, as they were clearing out a house or they went to investigate something that had happened. And they found this camera, and so they were showing us this footage. And that was really the best part of the movie for me because it was of these people, and they're having a birthday party uh, for their little girl. And... Uh, it's during the whole zombie thing and they realize it's dangerous, but they're still trying to kind of run their life as usual and giving the girl a birthday cake and, and whatnot. And then the zombies come in and it's kind of a creepy little thing. And that was, that was kind of cool. But uh, other than that, the whole rest of the movie sucks, sucks. So two out of 10 zombie diaries two. don't see it. Stick with the first one and just appreciate the first one for what it is. Cause that is a great movie. Watch your tongue boy. If you like this job, like this job, a couple episodes ago, you'll remember, I talked with a great guy, Franklin from Cypher Films. Uh, I had a great time talking with him, and I know you guys had a great time listening to that. And thank you for your overwhelming feedback. Uh, it was really great, and I hope to talk with Franklin a lot more. Um, he gave me the opportunity to watch his newest film, Death is No Escape, uh, before the general public gets to see it. And I really appreciate that, and he really wanted to know what I thought about it. And so... He's really entrusting me uh, with my take and my opinion. And it was funny. I was talking with him on Facebook and I'm like, dude, I got to warn you. I'm going to be brutally honest uh, because it's really tough for me right now because I know the guy that made this movie and I have to be critical of it, though, at the same time. Uh, Franklin is really, really cool. I really, really like him. But it's like I got to be fair, balanced about the film because I'm a critic. Got to be a critic. Got to be a critic. And it's a bummer. <laughs> Everyone hates a critic. But no, I have to be fair. But Franklin, again, thank you for giving me the opportunity to watch your film. Because I can tell it was a labor of love. There was a lot of passion going into this. And that's a lot of what this has got going for it. We talked about the low-budget nature of this, um, the no-budget nature of this. And we see things that plague all low-budget films of this kind. In parts, the acting isn't great. Um, and we especially see that during the times of dialogue. Uh, there's a lot of dialogue going on here because there's a lot of personalities 
kind of going back and forth, and we see a lot of things happening. And uh, unfortunately, some some of the acting is is just kind of stale. It's it's not great, but that's the thing. In these kind of movies, it's a lot of friends. It's just a lot of people that uh, just want to make a movie and they're passionate about the same thing so they want to go in and do it so no they haven't been trained and they don't have a lot of experience in doing it and uh, we see some of that in here so some of that is kind of weak uh, we also talked about uh, the effects now Franklin was abandoned by his uh, special effects guy we talked all about that and he had to take it upon himself to learn how to do special effects and um Wow, it's, it's a huge undertaking. I mean, me personally, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of digital video and, and uh, production, uh, post-production and effects and stuff. And I know it ain't no picnic, especially for somebody who's just learning it. And while the effects aren't perfect and everything, you can tell sometimes, they are a lot better than I thought they were going to be. So I got to hand it to him for that. Um, a lot of genuinely creepy moments in here. I like how he depicted these ghosts. Um, some of these kids were really creepy at the end. So again, I like the passion, the originality that went into it. It's hard to set yourself apart from other paranormal haunting kind of movies because there are a lot of them out there. And I think Franklin really tried hard to do something that was different and original. And uh, so I really appreciate that. Uh, I love the setting of the basement. That was very cool. It was a, a great atmosphere and just how old, run down, creepy, spooky. I mean, it's just a place you go in there and you're expecting it's something weird and, and scary is going to happen in this place. So it was a great selection. Um, he wove in the story of, of the, the urban ghost hunters and uh, so th that was really cool. That's kind of a big thing going on right now. A lot of these Ghost Hunter TV shows. And uh, he did that really well. Uh, I like the personalities of <laughs> this team, this crew of uh, TV people that went into there. And uh, you could tell, again, they're having a lot of fun making this. However, like I said, it is a low-budget film. you got to go into this and kind of set the bar at that level. It's not a Hollywood blockbuster. There's uh, This didn't have you know, even thousands and thousands of, of dollars to work with. This was a labor of love. It, it was made by a group of people who are obviously very passionate about the paranormal, and they had the drive to go out and make a movie about it. And uh, I think it was well-written, but, uh, you know, a lot of uh, what I couldn't get past a lot of times was just uh, some of the execution of it. And it wasn't the camera work. I thought it was shot actually really well. Uh, I like how... Uh, things were blocked and, and the way that uh, Franklin set up a lot of these shots. He has a great eye for that. Um, but in a movie, in, in this style that relies so much on, on uh, you know, selling the personal nature of things, selling the effects, uh, the low-budget thing kind of kind of really was, was that limitation for me. But uh, again, you got to go into this knowing what you're in for, for your average horror fan um i think you got to be a fan of the paranormal uh and you have to be into the ghost hunter style things and know what's going on there and you got to be able to understand the low budget nature of this you, you know you gotta you know if uh, uh, something I, I i equate this to would be like trauma and people either love or hate trauma they appreciate kind of the low budget uh, crazy style that uh, is what a lot of their movies are and you either love it or hate it and i think that's what it's gonna be with death is no escape you're gonna watch it and you're gonna either love it and really appreciate it 
for what it's saying, what it's trying to do, or you're going to hate it because, oh, that's, that's a low-budget movie and you know this didn't work and that didn't work. And so I think it's going to divide people that way. Um, so when this comes out, I am going to support it. I'm going to I'm going to plug it, and uh, you know hopefully you'll give it a shot and just understand that and see the passion, the creativity that uh, went into this, and be able to appreciate it for what it is. Um, so I'm going to give this uh, you know a real middle of the road rating because again I don't know I don't know how you how people are going to take this. They could fall either way. So I'm going to go in at uh, like a like a 5 out of 10 on this. It's really tough for me. Franklin, I love you, man. You know that. And uh, you're a fantastic guy. You're super smart, very creative, and I love your personality. And uh, I really hope you keep going at this. And I wish you all the best in, uh, in your work and with Death is No Escape. Thank you once again for giving me the opportunity to review and rate this film. I had to be critical on it, man. But, uh, you know, hey, the love is still there. The zombies are everywhere! We're all gonna die tonight. Oh wow! Thank you for uh, sticking around with me. This the big long episode that I had. It was really really fun for me to make. I uh, just love talking with everybody this week. And man, man, thank you again for listening. Um, Got to thank Dino Sands again. Check out Blood Plantation and uh, just a great guy, as you heard. Thanks also to Cena Palayo, Gravedigger over at Burial Day Books. Check out BurialDay.com and uh, The Gothic Blue Book because it is uh, a wonderful, wonderful anthology. Thank you also to Eric Kochmer and check out uh, Way Down in Chinatown. Uh, I'll have the link up where you can go and support the, the, the project. It is really, really worthwhile, and I think you ought to do it. Um, a great guy as well. Also, Terror Tovey, he's the man. Thank you for coming on. Check out Horror Metropolis. You guys know that. Great, great show. And uh, Brian Wolford, Kitsy Duncan for uh, talking with me about myctophobia. And uh, that's really exciting. And uh, keep checking back with me. I-, I will let you know when you can buy the DVD and, and see it. But uh, man, it was great for them to talk with me tonight. So. Once again, check out the official website of The Electric Chair at electricchairshow.com. My blog is at midnightcory.com, and uh, you can uh, check me out on Twitter. I am still going at uh, twitter.com slash weeklyhorror. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's uh, all the different places I live on the internet. Man, once again, thank you for listening, and I hope you join me again next week for another edition of The Electric Chair. (laughs) 